2: 888-441-7290 or go to com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for my Patreon food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888 888- 441-7290 or go to my website southern sense put a dash in the middle southern hyphen sense dot com be prepared Putting out the
3: color for you
2: all right welcome back you're here listening to southern sense here on blog talk radio SHR me stitch your facebook Uh, iHeart, oh the heck with it, just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess, the radio chickadee, Annie, along with my courageous co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, (laughs) Curtis. (coughs)
4: Hey, I am happy to report that I'm back in Florida. Of course, I was up there for about a week and a half in Philadelphia to um, be with my mother, who has fully recovered from the the pneumonia she had. But um, I will say this much, it's nice to be in a red state versus a blue state. Those people are so stressed out up there, (laughs) so stressed out that they're hostile.
2: (laughs) You were right up there when all the marching that was going on. I saw some of the video on the evening news about when they went through um, Philadelphia. That was tens of thousands of people. It was like a a locus spreading over the city.
4: It's more like Man, a stampede.
2: Yeah. Oh, jeez, And you're seeing some of the stuff that was coming around last night, tearing down on the Confederate statues. And one poor guy uh, ended up, the head of the statue cracked off and hit him in the head, sent him in critical condition to the hospital, Um He's no longer critical, but he is in very, very serious condition. You know how heavy those things are? It's like having a car well, pull on you.
4: It kind of remind me of a, a video I saw on Twitter last week where this young um, malcontent threw a brick at a Secret Service van. And <laughs> the cinder block bounced off and hit him in the head. The expression on his face, the pain, the agony... That is priceless,
2: priceless. Man, we're going to be talking to a a lot of great guests today. We're starting off with Tom Borelli. Um, I met Tom and Deme Borelli, oh gosh, a number of years ago, more than 10 years ago when they started the South Carolina Tea Party Coalition Conventions, and they are I mean, you look at the two of them separately and you say, well, what do they see? But the second when you see the two of them together, you understand the chemistry and the love that's between these two people. So Tom is going to be joining us at the start of the show. And then we're going to have Dr. Mike Busler. He's returning to the show. Um, He's the professor of finance at Stockton University. Uh, He also does a lot of op-ed pieces uh, in major newspapers. Um, He also has his own uh, blog called com. Um, then we're going to have Ken Lacourt, the founder of Lacourt News. Um, he's going to be joining us. And Kathy Barnett, who was supposed to join us two weeks ago, and her campaign schedule. Well, we didn't qualify, but she is supposed to be with us today. And then we're going to end the show from the Heritage Foundation, Jonathan but- uh, Butcher, Uh, He's an education expert at the Heritage Foundation. So we've got ourselves a really, really tight schedule today. And I have to apologize those that were listening last week and this week will find I had a bad, bad car accident. I was the victim of a hit and run who hit me head on, totaled my car. Uh, Consequently, um, thankfully, my ribs were not broken. I thought last week they might have been broken. They finally did the x-rays. They're just badly bruised. So if you hear me coughing, it's not COVID. I'm not sick. Just that my lungs and my <laughs> my ribs are bruised. So I apologize for coughing ahead of time. So just bear with me. All right. Excuse <laughs> me. See there we go again, girls. I can't even take a deep breath.
3: <laughs>
2: oh man. All right. This is this is gonna be a, a real pain in the butt. But it's well really it's so much to talk about. The riots that are going on, this move now to rename military bases, uh, tear down statues, uh, it's, it's gotten out of hand. You've got Antifa that took over Seattle. And you know what? In one way, Curtis, it's a good thing they did that because the more they show exactly who and what they are, the more mainstream America will turn against them. And their attempt at this Antifa movement is going to kill them. it will kill the movement, what they're doing, what we see, and the truth about them, and this backlash against cops took off that show nine one one cops. I mean, it was a number one rated show in its in its field. I mean, it was even beating Greg Gutfeld out of Fox News, and I love greg. he's one of the few there that still shoots straight. But they even took down a sh- children's cartoon. Is this what we want to show the public? You know, that law and order does not matter any longer? Equal protection in the eyes of law is no longer what America is about. And that's what this... It, it's going to backfire again big time. People are getting upset. It's
4: ignorance. Lawlessness it's pure
2: is more than the streets. Well, that said... Um, anyone that listens well, to let's, the show Well, let knows me share
4: something you- with you real quick. Let me share something with you and okay. show you how ignorant these these um, protesters are. There was one statue that got torn down, and it was a statue of this famous guy who was an abolitionist back in the day. If only they had read the inscription, they would have known that. But to them, every statue from that era is a racist statue. It's crazy. Yeah.
2: It is crazy, but we're going to be talking about all of this with our guests, and as I was starting to say, that we start off each show with a dedication to a fallen hero, and today's dedication is going to go out to Deputy Sheriff Sheldon Gordon Whiteman of Long County Sheriff's Office in Georgia. His end of watch was this year, Thursday, January 23rd. This first part is coming from 11 Alive, and it reads, A South Georgia community is in mourning following the death of a deputy who was involved in a wreck while trying to capture a suspect. County Sheriff's Office said Deputy Sheldon Whiteman died in a crash on Highway 57 in Long County, Georgia, around 3 a.m. A side note, this is not too far from where I live, just on the other side of Savannah. WSAV reports the crash was not far from the Tibet Road. The sheriff's office said Whiteman was assisting with a pursuit. Georgia State Patrol Captain Thornell King told the station that the chase began when a Ludovic police officer spotted a driver running stop signs in the city. Whiteman joined the chase, but he eventually lost control of his vehicle and drove deep into the woods along Highway 57. He was taken to Liberty Regional Medical Center in Hinesville, Georgia, but died from his injuries. In a statement released by the sheriff's office, a spokesperson said Long County Sheriff Craig W. Nobles and members of his staff are deeply grieved to announce Whiteman's death in the line of duty. Whiteman had been with the sheriff's office for just four months. In a release to 11 Alive, the sheriff's office added that he had been certified as a police officer since 2016. He also worked in Chatham County. Deputy Whiteman was a loving husband and father and is survived by his wife, Alyssa Ann Whiteman, and three sons, the sheriff's office had said. Reading from his obituary, Deputy Sheriff Gordon Whiteman, age 44, line of duty on Thursday, January 23rd, 2020. Born in Trinidad and Tobago, he had lived in Long County several years. He had served as a deputy in the Long County Sheriff's Department for only a few months after serving with the Chatham County Sheriff's Department for six years. He earned his bachelor's degree from DeVaray University and was a member of the Live Oak Church in Hinesville. Although he and his family sometimes attended a new beginning church in Ludowicki Sheldon was a dedicated family man and hero, and especially to his wife and sons. It was preceded in death by his mother, Kathleen Whiteman, his sister, Charlene Whiteman, and in June by his brother-in-love, Sheldon Price. And in memorial to him, written by Kathy Hine Whitten, I was fortunate enough to meet the Whiteman family. Officer Whiteman was a loving, proud father and positive reinforcer to his family. I will never forget how sweet he was. The world has lost a wonderful man. My prayers and love to his beautiful wife and wonderful sons. May your grief be short and peace and courage take its place. Written by Lieutenant Inga Castane-Smith. I was one of Deputy Whiteman's supervisors at the Chatham County Sheriff's Office. One of my staff personnel and I were talking about the loss of Deputy Whiteman, and one of the officers reminded me that Whiteman once said, while growing up, all he wanted to do was be police. That statement is a testament of Deputy Whiteman's spirit and character working a job he loved. Every day Deputy Whiteman came into work he greeted everyone with a smile and a positive attitude, which was a blessing because of the stress of the job of law enforcement. There are some people who bring a light to the world, and that even after they're gone, their light continues and remains. Whiteman will be greatly missed. My deepest condolences to the family, and may God continue. Light continues and remains. Whiteman will be greatly missed. My deepest condolences to the family, and may God continue to give you comfort during this time. And finally, written by retired Captain Wanda Williams, also with the Chatham County Sheriff's Office, my deepest sympathies to the Whiteman's family and friends upon his passing. Sheldon was a great example for officers past and present as he embodied all the best characteristics of a law enforcement officer resilience, toughness and a competitive spirit Sheldon always carried D and class as he was his, as I was his supervisor Sheldon was a team player and it was a joy to serve with him he will be greatly missed my prayer is for God to strengthen you during this time of bereavement And for your fond memories of Sheldon, bring you comfort. He may be absent from the body, but he is present with the Lord. God bless you. Today's show is dedicated to Deputy Sheriff Sheldon Whiteman. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there serving as law enforcement, especially in these times of riot and grief. Also to other first responders be they firefighters or emergency services. And we also dedicate to the men and women that serve in the military from the birth of this nation through today and into its marvelous future. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Harrington, My Name is America. May God bless and protect each and every one.
1: Virtues I stand for. I respect more humanity. Now I'm challenged by Tyrone.
2: And we are back. you are here listening to Southern Sense here on Block Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, iHeartRadio. Oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show. Put a hyphen in the middle, southern com. I'm your hostess with the most sister radio, Chickadee Annie, along with Captain Courageous. See, <laughs> I promoted you. <laughs>
4: I appreciate that. Does oh, <laughs> it come with pay? Uh,
2: <laughs>
4: Increase <laughs> in pay.
3: <laughs>
2: well, want to welcome everyone that's watching us over up on Facebook. Feel free to post in there. Those are listening here also in the chat room on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, welcome aboard. I see people popping into our studio here. If you want to participate, please remember to press 1, and we'll be happy to bring you in to ask your questions or take your comments. But we got ourselves a lot to talk about, Curtis. I mean, uh our first get which should be calling in very shortly, Tom Borelli. Um, but I want to ask you, did you see the the photo of Nancy Pelosi and Chucky Schumer and the others kneeling on the house the floor of the house, wearing these um African
0: scarves? Did you
4: No, I didn't. I heard about it and it just sounds like another case of pandering. It's like when um Hillary Clinton and um, Al Gore go to Black churches and try to sound black.
2: Well, you know, it, it, the the scarves they were wearing um the uh pattern of it goes back to I believe it's the Ash- Ashanti uh tribes in Africa. Also known as Kenki attire. Guess what? the Asante's were the main African tribe that had actually slavery. They went and made, they were very, very wealthy widespread over around the area of uh, Ghana. Uh, but there was, they were so powerful that they conquered the other tribes around them and enslaved them. Oh yes. You know, but you know, they were benevolent to this slaves. So they allowed the slaves to own slaves. Um, yeah, really. Slavery is slavery. I don't care what you do. You put a chain on someone, you're enslaving them. Unless they are you know, in prison for you know, a criminal act. That's something different. You enslaved yourself. Uh, but this very tribe, and this is the garment they wear to show solidarity with to Black Lives Matter, the main tribe that promoted slavery. And when the Europeans began to do the slave trade, they went to the Asante's and had them produce slaves for them. Yeah, it, it, are they aware of the hypocrisy they just
5: promoted?
4: No, it's everything on the left is about symbolism. Not that they truly understand the symbols, but you know, they just go with whatever they think will, you know, show um, some kind of solidarity. That's what I believe.
2: Well, I'm going to put this up on Twitter later on because I took a screenshot of this other uh, tweet. Um, Zuby Music had posted it. Uh, he had the original photo of Chucky Schumer and the others wearing these scarves. The scarves of a, tr- a tribe, an African tribe, that practiced slavery and promoted slavery. And it's, it's, it's amazing. Mm. I, I just I just uh, <laughs> I mean, you just, you, you just really can't make this stuff up. You really, really can't surprised. make this stuff up. Uh, <laughs> no, while everyone is is worrying about these riots, the anti the Black Lives Matter, all these protests going on, while we are in the, still with the covid virus, they're trying to push through a bill in the House. Now, it was presented back in January by, believe it or not, a Democrat out of Georgia. Uh, It's H.R. 5717. It's called the Gun Violence Prevention and Community Safety Act of 2020. So while our eye is not on the ball, they're figuring that they're going to try to pass this through the House, sneak it through the Senate, and maybe they'll get Trump to sign it. But what this does, it changes various uh, parts of the federal uh, framework, transfer and possession of firearms and ammunitions. It would require individuals, catch this, to purchase a license, acquire or possess a firearm or ammunition. It raises, raises the minimum age to owning a firearm from 18 to 21. Now, you can serve in the military and carry a gun into battle if you're 17, 18. But you can't own a firearm until you're 21. So, to purchase firearms and add ammunition, you're going to have to go through a background check. A requirement for firearm transfers also between private parties will require law enforcement agencies to be notified and a firearms related background check. And if there's any denials in your background check, The local law enforcement is going to be notified that you've been denied the purchase of a firearm or ammunition. So in order to buy a firearm or to transfer it, say, for example, you bought a gift for your kid. You wanted to go hunting with your kid, so you bought him his own rifle. So to transfer that firearm from daddy to sonny or from husband to wife, you have to have a license. You have to have a background check. And, heaven forbid, your wife or your son is denied for whatever reason, because now, if he's under the age of 21, you can't go hunting with him. He can't possess a firearm. So even to go hunting and give your son one of your rifles to use and then return to you, that's considered a transfer. You need a license. You need a background check. This is gun control run amok. H.R. 5717. Right now, it hasn't well, come the, out of committee the in the House. But, okay. Well, the status right now, it's still sitting in committee in the House. It hasn't come forward. But there are rumblings over there that they're going to try to take it out of committee and bring it to the House for a vote. It has only a 19% chance of passing according to GovTrack. Let's see what happens because now with everyone in this panic – with Antifa out there with AK-47s or whatever farms they're, they're carrying to protect their new autonomous zone in Seattle, maybe this might be another push for gun control. If we don't pay attention, will then soon become reality.
4: You would think the NRA would be all over this.
2: I'm sure That's they the are. That's the first I heard of and this. Gun Owners of America, and there's a couple other organizations. Now, this one got sent to me by one of the uh, lesser-known gun organizations. So I'm sure once it, it hits, hits the round robin on social media, there's going to be enough of backlash to where I'll predict this doesn't make it out of committee. I'll predict that. Well, that's one, I,
4: I don't see it. That's one thing or, That's one thing about the left. They are relentless. They, they don't make it this time. They'll bring it. Back to the you know To the floor maybe a year or two Later they just keep going That's why we Have to be you know
2: But who was it Said never let a good crisis go To waste Well Yeah we've got the the peaceful protests because of Floyd uh, Being killed Uh, You've got the Antifa now Riding and looting That's two crises. And then you still have the virus. That's three crises. Don't forget the economy. The jobs lost. Businesses closing because of the economy with everything shut down. So, you know, we've got four crises. So they're not going to let us pass. While we're worrying about the little minutiae details of getting by in everyday living, they're looking at the big picture. What can we pull over on the right that they're not going to pay attention
4: What's the fifth? We got five. They want to get rid of statues and change the names of the bases.
2: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So
4: they want, they want to change price. the name They're of the waiting. bases. Yeah. Fort Braggs. I, you know, I, I had no idea Fort Braggs was the name of a segregationist.
2: I doubt that any many of those men and women that go through any of those bases had any idea. You know, no. so you know the brave men and women that, that trained in those bases and fought to defend our our nation, what are you going to name it? Fort Peace? what is it? What are you going to name it? Malcolm X, you're going to name it the, the base Malcolm X. Uh, you're going to name it the Black Panthers. What are you going to name these bases? You know, how much pandering are we going to give to the left? When is it? When are we going to say enough is enough?
3: You know,
4: well, did you see the, the, I did hear an interesting take on this this morning on a local conservative news show, and somebody suggested that we have enough uh, Medal of um, Honor recipients that we can start naming things like that, you know ships and, and bases after their names. I, n- I never thought of that one.
2: Well, you know, if you're, if you're building a base, yes. If you're building a ship, yes. But not renaming them. I mean, It's just too much pandering. And what are you going to do? Cut out all of our past history? Deny all of our past history? We can't know how we got here unless we know where we came from. If we do that, we keep on repeating the same mistakes over and over again. We are pandering to a group at the expense of the rest of the nation. And it's got to stop. I don't know if anyone saw the pictures of these, these white protesters kneeling and washing the feet of Black Lives Matter's members. I mean stop it. Stop apologizing. We're not responsible for the slavery that happened generations ago. But what we are responsible for are our actions we do today and recognize the humanity of each and every individual. If black lives are so important, and you've heard me say this over and over again, why aren't you protesting Planned Parenthood that has butchered and murdered generations of black children, of pre-born black children? What are you going to say the value of human life while it's still in the womb that life doesn't matter that future person that could have been born and cured cancer or would have been the next president of the United States I don't care what color that child has value and no, black lives matter so much that these innocent babies are murdered enough, let's stop the apology let's look at where it's standing and tell them, back off now I'm responsible for my actions here and today. Don't make me apologize for what someone did years ago. That's not my problem. My problem is what are we doing today? Don't make me apologize. I'm not kneeling for anyone except yeah. for my God.
4: That that battle was already fought, you know. We should be concerned about, like, black-on-black black crime, you know, where for every person that's killed by a cop it's like, 200 or maybe 300 killed by another black and from the statistics from what I've heard there have only been like about 10 um, killings when it came to blacks I think it was last year and most of those were justifiable you know somebody coming at the police um, with their car or something like that or shooting at them and maybe two were unjustified
2: Well, well let's welcome aboard onto the show I'd like to consider him a friend. He and his wife are so sweet. Last time I saw this gentleman was in Myrtle Beach a couple of years ago where he and his wife sat down for an interview one-on-one with me. Let's welcome aboard Dr. Tom Borelli. Good afternoon, Tom. How are you doing
6: today? It's been a while. Hey, Annie. Great to be back with you.
2: Yeah. I mean, I miss those those conventions we had in Myrtle Beach. You know, it's a a shame, but uh, we have to move forward. We had so much fun at them and it was always a pleasure to see you and Janine.
6: No, absolutely, it was a lot of fun. We were in January, so it was always always good for us to get out of the northeast at that point in time. <laughs> <laughs> and I
2: considered it freezing cold. But, you know, it was always great. <laughs> well, Our, my room, that the room I always got overlooked the beach. And to wake up in the morning and to see the horseback riders on the beach early in the morning, it was just so peaceful, so calm. And then to go out and into the convention floor and have the fun that we did have with marvelous speakers like the two of you. Listen, um, I... As I was doing my research, and you know I do my homework, uh, I pulled up and I loved this article you wrote. Voting Democrat is hazardous to your health and freedom. I mean, it's just kind of like segued into what I was just saying just now. Uh, We've got to stop apologizing for what has happened to us in the past because we're not responsible for what happened in the past. We are responsible for what is here today, and what we should be doing is working here today not destroying our past history. And this article just kind of like dovetailed right into what my thoughts were.
6: Well, well, thank you. I was just writing, actually, to be totally honest, I was going to write the piece solely focused on the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And my point was that there was a huge, was huge difference if you were living in a Republican red state or a Democrat Blue State, and now tragically, Blue State governors like Andrew Cuomo of New York and Phil Murphy of New Jersey, Tom Wolf of Pennsylvania, and I think uh, Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, they actually on purpose put COVID positive people into nursing homes. Which, you know, my background is in science, and, and my undergraduate is actually in microbiology and infectious disease, so the first thing you want always to do is isolate whoever's infected from the healthy people. Well, what these Democrat governors did is they basically infected nursing homes with people knowing from the evidence in Italy and in China and other places around the world that the elderly were the most vulnerable and this virus is highly contagious. So right off the bat, you basically have Democrats killing their constituents. And then I added on top yeah. the inability of Democrats to control protests that turned into riots. And I think something like 20 people have lost their lives, 17 people, because of the, the riots throughout the country, because the original person there in Minnesota, Mr. Frey, he didn't you know, nip the – the protests when he turned into riots right in the bud. He didn't stop it, and then it spread throughout uh, Minneapolis, and it spread throughout the whole country. So right from the start, if you're going to vote for a Democrat, you really have to think, strip away labels. Just think, who is looking out for my best interest of me, my family, my livelihood? How many people have lost their jobs around the country? In Michigan, Governor Whitmer pulled, I think, the license of a barber who wanted to, to cut hair. And in New Jersey, Phil Murphy closed down a gymnasium that started to open. I mean, these Democrats are just punishing their constituents, whether they're literally killing them with the COVID virus or putting them on the unemployment line by closing down their business. And this is objective. This is fact. This is, look, I'm a Republican and Republican because I believe that party best represents our path to prosperity and liberty. But looking at recent times, not going back decades, not going back centuries, recent times, the last six months, it's clear. You vote for a Democrat, you're putting your life in in danger.
2: Yeah, look at the riots that they have against cops now. They're taking down TV shows. It's dangerous. It's evil to be a police officer. Uh, What is it? Is it... um... Uh, is it Minnesota, Minneapolis, uh, where they're now going to have these professional unarmed uh, contractors or whatever you want to call them respond to what they determine to be a nonviolent call. I'm sorry. As a cop, any call you get, even if it's a little fender bender, you must assume that there is a potential for danger anywhere. You can never assume that a call is nonviolent, especially if it happens to be a domestic call. There may be your husband and wife arguing, oh, yeah, no one's throwing punches, no one's throwing dishes, so it's nonviolent. Uh Uh-uh. You never, ever. So I, I, I see a disaster going on with that. But they want to federalize law enforcement. They want that one-size-fits-all, so what occurs in New York City, whatever methods you determine federally, will also be in some little podunk town down in Mississippi. The same thing doesn't work. Different environments, different cultures, and different ways of thinking. You can't think, – but it's an excuse to federalize law enforcement. And, Tom, I'm going to use the Hitler word. What did Hitler do? He federalized law enforcement in Germany in order to control the populace.
6: Well, you know, Democrats, to your point, what they always view everything as one size fits all, and they always like a federal government to do everything rather than responsible government closest to the people. And going back to Minneapolis, this is, you know, another tragedy there is the Mayor Fry, who was recently elected. He was elected on a platform that he was going to reform the police department because they had some concern or some you know, civil, uh, pe- civil issues in the local community because uh, two individuals were killed. One actually was a white woman by a black cop, and I believe he was convicted and is in jail. And another one was a, a black man was, was killed who was resisted to arrest, and no charges were filed in that case. But because of those two instances, police – Uh, reform and police uh, handling of of situation was an election issue this individual got elected and what does he do well he certainly didn't look into the the records of the existing police force in minneapolis because the individual who's charged the former police officer's charged with killing mr floyd he had something like 18 uh, instances where people complained about him and two, I think there was some sort of disciplinary action. So if you're going to reform a police department, when the first thing you do is look to see if there's any problematic cops in in the uh, in the department there, and and start from that point, that would be the logical thing to do. But there's no, no way to, to your point. There's no way the federal government could figure that out. If you can't figure it out in the local police department, how is the federal government going to do it?
2: They can't. They cannot. It's absolutely impossible. And how do you do community policing if it's going to be controlled by the federal government? Unless you know what is down there on the ground in that neighborhood, unless you know the personalities, you're not going to have a peaceful neighborhood. You're going to have us versus them mentality. And to do good policing, you can't have us versus them mentality. You have to have cooperation from both sides in order to maintain law and order, to keep crime down, to know about it before it happens, to be proactive instead of reactive. And so the, the, you, you write in your article how the Democrats every single time take the wrong end of the stick.
3: Yeah,
6: and it's consistent. And, again, it's objective. This is data. <laughs> and it's something that, again, people, when they walk into this voting booth come November, they, they really, it's not just, well, I'll vote whoever, whoever party loyalty, or it really doesn't matter, it doesn't affect me. No, it does. And these two recent examples shows whoever you put in power could have a significant impact on your life, your family's life, your livelihood, and your liberty. And I think I try, well, expect- what I try to do is remind people that this is actually serious business when you go in to vote because they will, if you have the wrong person in charge, they will destroy your life if not end it.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Matter of fact, here in South Carolina, we had our primary this past Tuesday, and um, we do now have a good candidate to challenge uh, Joe Bierke and Cunningham. Uh, so Nancy Mays, she's a lovely lady. I know her. So she is going to be coming up against Beer Can Joe, as I love to call him. You remember the story about Joe coming on to the, trying to walk onto the floor of Congress the very first day with a six-pack of beer?
6: No, I, I don't remember that one. <laughs> I guess I should have. <laughs>
2: so we have a nickname for him, which when we were protesting outside of his office uh, this recently, I had a big sign, which I keep behind me. The beer can Joe has got to go because we were protesting the uh, the impeachment. <laughs> so, anyway, um, talking about protests, we have it now where they want to tear down anything that is reminiscent of the Civil War era. Anything to deal with slavery or the Confederate generals or anything like that. And God bless Kaylee McEnany. She had a perfect response to that when uh, John Roberts uh, asked her a question about this, and she turned it basically and said, "Well, you know, if you're really concerned about Black Lives Matter movement and these protests, then why aren't you, you know, going after Joe Biden for his association and?" Seeking support from segregationists, and she start started naming all the instances. I thought it was absolutely marvelous. It was beautiful.
6: Oh, for sure. And again, Democrats want to try to play, you know, the Confederate card or the racist card. First of all, we all know it was the Democrats who were the Confederates, number one, who wanted to maintain slavery. And what people always forget, which always comes to the top of my mind, is the late Senator Robert Byrd from West Virginia, who was a Klansman in his past. He wasn't not only a Klansman, he was an exalted Cyclops in the Klan. Not only was he elected a, as a Democrat senator, he became this Senate majority leader. And Hillary Clinton called him his mentor. Yes. So yeah, if I did not really playing that. that card. In fact, even today I looked it up. But there was an article in Breitbart News, is that Nancy Pelosi's father was governor of Baltimore, and in 1948 he had a he led a ceremony where they had two statues of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson in Baltimore in 1948, and he talked about generally what great leaders they were. So 1948, not 1900, not 1880, right? 1948, Mm -hmm. Baltimore, not Richmond. It is is just amazing what Democrats get away with because the anti-Trump media refuses to press these questions.
2: Well, we had FDR with the internment camps, which my (laughs) grandfather narrowly... Birth of a Nation? Well, like you, my grandparents were straight off the boat from Italy, and my grandfather ended up serving in World War I uh, for the American Army. So my grandmother and he did not have to go to the—they didn't know it, but Italians also had an internment camp. Uh, my grandfather from Germany, again, served in World War I, the U.S. Army. So, again, he had to change his name in order to avoid being harassed or interned. So what are we talking about that? Oh, wait a minute. Uh, what about LBJ and his racist comments? Correct. Um, his great experiment, which ended up enslaving generational poverty to the black population here. Generational poverty from LBJ, and that was deliberate to get the vote. So we don't talk about that. So are we going to rename anything named after FDR or, uh, or LBJ?
6: Right, or, or rip down half the buildings in West Virginia because of Robert Byrd. <laughs> I mean, it is just amazing, and I think even the NAACP and former President Obama had, you know, nice things to say about Byrd, you know, at his funeral. So, you know, it it is just, it's all politics. It has nothing to do with reality. Again, going back to my article, I just tried to write about results. Let's just look at the data right in front of us. If it was... Going back to the scientific example, if it was a case-control study, would you want to live in Florida or New York with the COVID crisis? Because in in New Mm -hmm. York, I think over 6,000 deaths in nursing homes. Well, in Florida, much better, because uh, Governor DeSantis followed the science. He tried to protect the elderly and the most vulnerable first. Well, Cuomo did not.
2: By by training, you're a microbiologist. Now, I came across this article that was in the classic papers that army scientists may have gotten some sort of a vaccine. It's called S for spike ferritin neoparticle. Have you heard about this at Walter Reed Army Hospital?
6: No, I haven't heard about that one yet. But there's there's like there's I think there's almost 90 to 100 vaccines like. Uh, People around the world, actually, whether it be companies or governments, are working on. And uh, that those are the vaccine. And then there's a lot of therapeutics, that is, you know, treating people that have it. So, the, you know, there's going to be a lot. We're a lot better prepared now than we were before. And obviously there's some reports about cases going up. Well, of course, cases are going to go up because you're testing more people. That's what you would expect. The real key is, you know, or, is there a huge surge in hospitalizations? That's when you get concerned.
2: Well, you know, I I was listening to the news. They're all talking about this 80% occupancy in hospitalizations, blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking to myself, how many of those hospitalizations are actually COVID cases? And what I, in my little bit of research, I'm finding it's not necessarily all COVID cases, because now hospitals are starting to open up to do elective procedures and other procedures and taking in patients that they weren't taking before because of the covid virus so yeah we're going to see a natural increase of occupancy but that doesn't mean it's covid cases
6: yeah i mean there's there's and then there's been a lot of misreporting and the data fudging if someone you know, died in a car crash and they had covid they in some instances they said they died of, of covid 19 so from my perspective that one of the other tragedies here is that what this whole issue has really done to the credibility of science because <laughs> nobody's going to believe anybody anymore and that's that's going to be the biggest biggest problem if something really serious comes down the line it's going to be like the boy who cried wolf
2: yeah well you know as everyone's having all these panic attacks what very few people are talking about is the rise in the stock market today the turnaround the uplifting of the economy the return of jobs our job numbers are are looking so much healthier and better than what lamestream media is talking about. The nation's getting back on its feet.
6: Oh, definitely. I mean, this obviously this was a huge hit to the economy because you basically shut down the the entire, the vast majority of the economy. So, but before the the good news, the silver lining is that the economy was rocking beforehand. So we started from a very high level. So that means there's going to be still a lot of pent up demand. Companies went into this uh, with, uh, you know, very good uh, balance sheets, so to speak, respect. So most of them are. Some of them, obviously, who are weaker are going to go bankrupt. But we will, you know, we certainly will survive and we sure hope those jobs come back faster rather than slower. And I certainly think they will.
2: You know, it's funny because, you know, uh, South Carolina is not really an official lockdown or anything. We didn't do a full lockdown like a lot of. Around doing various errands, you know, because I have my mother with me who suffered a stroke, so I have to go and get her medicines and other things she needs. Um, I look to see how many businesses have actually shuttered permanently, and it's not that many. You know, our economy is a lot healthier than you know we are led to believe. Consequently, Trump has done another thumb in the eye to the left, and he's getting ready to ramp up his rallies all over again with the Juneteenth in. Tulsa,
6: Oklahoma. Yeah, that's, uh, I believe that's next week, right? Uh, Yeah, a week from today, actually, the the 19th.
4: Next Friday. Yeah.
6: Yeah. Yeah, in Tulsa,
2: Oklahoma. But do you hear the the left saying anything about this? And if anyone knew what the story was about the massacre of, they, they don't even know how many blacks, and the whole area of the city that was, Confined to only blacks, so you weren't allowed, you know, to have anyone else in there. Uh, it was a segregationist city, and it was 99 years ago this massive massacre occurred. But do you have, hear the Democrats are supposed to be the party of the black people talking about this at all? No, you hear crickets.
6: Well, that's the way they play. They only want it to, The one thing that they do you know, somewhat to their credit is they always play to win and they're always on offense. And it's too bad too many Republicans didn't do that, you know, over the years. But President Trump does. He's always on offense because that's the way you play the game. That's why he closed the media, the, the fake news media. Former President Bush, <laughs> George W. Bush would, you know, just basically give up on the on the media. I can't win, I'm not going to say anything. Well, President Trump is different. He's fighting because he fights for the forgotten men and the women in the United States, he fights for all Americans, black, Hispanics, Asians, you name it, he's fighting for them, and he doesn't shy away from a confrontation. Other Republicans, they just, they'd rather not get into it. But President Trump doesn't play like that. He plays to win. For us. Absolutely.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. And despite it, You know, he still has his Twitter account, and now Facebook is trying to censure him. I don't think they're going to really succeed too well. Um, I sometimes find some of my posts being censured. Uh, Some of the ads I try to put up for a show here will be denied. They're doing anything and everything to quiet us down, but I think the opposite effect is that because we have access to social media and platforms such as this, we're getting the word out, and we're not going to be silenced any longer. The silent majority is no longer silent
6: great point because that's because technology has really opened it up i i can't tell you how many people my wife danine and i have met over twitter or or through facebook and stayed in contact with them how many opportunities we had from from that uh, i'm part of america's voice news i'm a contributor there it's uh on something called pluto tv and it's on dish network and also obviously through you know the uh through the internet either the website and and it's just amazing that the way you can really just communicate through all these different ways and then when you do have an opportunity to speak then you can send it out to all the people who follow you and or who are interested in you and then they take that message and spread it around we didn't have this before so it's a it, technology is really great opportunity for conservatives
2: it is, it is, and that's how you, Denine, and I met because of this platform being able to get all of our voices out and offer opportunity for others. Now, I'm glad you mentioned about you know doing the show. I didn't realize that it was on Dish. I thought you had been up on uh, XM Sirius on Patreon.
6: Well, we actually, Denine and I were sometimes were uh, co-hosts on uh, radio Sirius XM satellite radio, the Patriot Channel we haven 't done that in a while, but uh, you know needs a fox News contributor, but i 'm with america 's voice news and uh, it 's it's, it's a relatively new conservative network but it's, uh, it 's growing and it gives us an opportunity or at least gives me an opportunity to to give my platform out and i 've also been fortunate enough to have been on Fox a few times, as well as Newsmax TV, which is another new newer uh, opportunity for uh, conservatives to get their messages out
2: absolutely and you know with uh, your articles you have some really really great articles uh one of them happened to be one of my favorite people uh governor cuomo as a former new yorker i am familiar with the antics of this gentleman and he's not as uh Thing. but what i find amazing looking at the dynamics between new york city and new york state i have to laugh uh de blasio is there anyone that likes de blasio anymore is there anything that he could do that would make people like him I mean, this man has to be the most hated man
6: yeah i don't think he's really liked by anybody i think he got booed at a uh at a at a, at a recently at a protest because the, the left doesn't fear he's going, I guess, far enough, and we know how far left he is. And uh, not long ago, Damien and I were down in midtown Manhattan. We had to go for a doctor's appointment, and uh, I guess it was about a week ago, uh, which, the only noise you really heard, there was very little foot traffic, was plywood being cut and being boarded up around windows. And this was at Madison and 50. Madison and 53rd and Fifth Avenue and 52nd, the heart of Midtown, Saks Fifth Avenue, areas like that, all boarded up. Because the police couldn't protect it.
2: Yeah, they can't. And at this point, they're looking to defund portions of NYPD. Uh, Right now, um, matter of fact, Patrick Lynch, who happens to be PBA president, he and I came out of the same command. I know Patty very well. Um, He's trying to hold everything together, but these cops are leaving by the droves. They're saying, if this is how you're going to treat us, we're going to go to a different department or even leave completely. We don't need this anymore. It's not worth the pension.
6: Well, you, they're not allowed. You can't do policing with both hands tied behind your back. And that's yeah. really what's going on there. It's not fair to the community. It's not fair to uh, law enforcement. No one's going to win except for the criminals. And, of course, then the Democrats' response is, let's pull money away from police departments, which makes obviously absolutely no sense. That will only lead to more death, more destruction. But I think the American people are smart enough. They're going to figure out pretty quickly how important this election is in November, and I think, uh, which, which really gives President Trump and Republicans a, a great opportunity.
2: Well, Dr. Tom Borelli, is always is fun speaking with you. Uh, give my regards and love to Deneen for me. Uh, we will have you back on as soon as you like. You know, just let me know, and definitely we'll get you right back on. And people, again, can find you on American Voice News. They can find you up on Newsmax, also with your articles there. And uh, God bless the hard work you do, sir.
6: Thanks, Annie. Have a great weekend.
2: All right, you too. Dr. Tom Borelli, check him out up on Newsmax and America's Voice News. All right, we got up next, our next victim also returning to the show. We've got Dr. Michael Bessler. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you doing today?
7: I'm doing very well, Annie. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here.
2: Oh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. I have so much fun always talking with you. You know, everyone's talking about the civil unrest uh, and they're saying, all right, fine, they're rioting over here, they're rioting over here, but it's, it's okay over here where I am at this moment. I, the economic impact that's going to spread out, is going. To, people are going to be amazed. As Dr. Tom Borelli was just mentioning, Saks Fifth Avenue and others, major stores in the heart of Manhattan may never open up again.
7: Yeah, this is really an economic disaster, and I'm not sure how our uh, elected government officials allow something like this to continue. Look, we we live in a democracy, actually a constitutional republic, but we live in a democracy, and in a democracy we welcome healthy debate, and we welcome uh, peaceful protest, and it's really part of our system and the way things have uh, evolved Um, over the couple of centuries that the country has been in existence. But when peaceful protest turns into violence and destruction, it has to be stopped and it's wrong. And they're hurting just the people in many instances that they claim to be defending. A lot of small businesses, not so much in New York city, but in towns like Minneapolis, what's happening in Seattle is a, is a, a disaster And there are small businesses being clobbered, and they don't have the resources to be able to handle something like this and be able to come back. So um, as you were mentioning before, I I was listening, um, there are a number of businesses that are going to close and are not going to be able to come back. And for some of these small business people that have put um, their lives and every penny that they have into their business, many small business people have to put a – a mortgage or a second mortgage even on their home to be able to secure enough capital to keep the business going. Now, once the business goes, they can't pay that, and they're perhaps they're in a the danger of lo- losing their homes. This is awful, and it's something that has to be stopped immediately.
2: Now, having been owned small businesses, where you're coming from. Sometimes you're wondering how you're going to get through the next week. And when you have employees also that you're responsible for, the burden on right. that individual's shoulders is incalculable. So you're talking about not only just economic health, but actually mental and physical health become affected.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And look, we're, we're, we're coming out of this lockdown, and uh, the federal government has passed massive stimulus packages, which are both good and bad, by the way. But on, on the good side, uh, these massive stimulus packages have given consumers money to spend. So when the economy does open, they'll have money to spend, and we're looking at, at least I believe, a V-shaped recovery. In other words, uh, the economy went down very quickly, but I think uh, it's going to turn around very uh, quickly, too, uh, mostly because of what the federal government did with those stimulus packages. Well, just as they're about to turn around, we have this destruction in some major cities, Um, And these people who have been shut down for a couple of months anyway uh, won't be able to reopen. And as I say, they won't be able to uh, sustain this. And a large portion of them are going to end up going out of business for good.
2: Oh, that's the shameful part. You know, not only that, you also look at businesses, sports, uh, other industries kowtowing to these protesters and to the rioters. You know, they're bending over backwards to be politically correct. At what cost to the rest of us?
7: I think it's awful the way they're doing it. Look, in pro football, Goodell changed his position and says it's okay to, to kneel now. Uh, even though when they started to the kneel before, it had a negative impact on uh, financially on the National Football League. It just turned off so many people. We saw some of the crowds. Uh, Some of the stadiums were in full, as they uh, usually are. Uh, The ratings on TV were starting to to go down. And instead of trying to make it right and say, say, look, um, there's a place for these people to to protest. But while they're being paid phenomenal amounts of money for three hours while they're on the playing field, they have to do what the management tells them. Indeed, the, the management tells them what to wear where to stand, who to smash into, where to run, and you have to do exactly what you're supposed to do. Otherwise, you're taken off the field and somebody else comes in. Well, one of the things you're supposed to do uh, is uh, help create goodwill with the fans. And by kneeling um, during the national anthem, you're not creating any goodwill at all, and it's hurting the league um, financially. Why they said it's okay now is just beyond me.
2: Uh, not only that, you got NASCAR now, um, and matter of fact, they've lost a lot of fans. And one of the drivers actually quit NASCAR. Says this is the last year. If this is if you're going to tell me, you know, where one person may feel that the Confederate flag stands for heritage rather than slavery, uh, and you're going to tell me that you think it stands for something else simply because this other person objects, you're going to trample on me. And it's going to be at my cost to pander to someone else.
7: Yeah. And so um, I forget who that was, but he, uh, he said he's not racing anymore. He's not going to take, uh, he's not going to participate uh, in, in this. And look, they, they want to go further. All of these, uh, or there are many uh, forts that are named after uh, Confederate generals, and they're not named after them because they necessarily took a stance on something. This is a military operation uh, where they lived. Uh, in the state they lived, the uh, state took a certain side, and as a result, they were uh, military people, and they did what they were supposed to to do, and they generally did it uh, well. We're not condoning anybody's uh, beliefs in anything necessarily. We're just taking a look at these are military people. They had good military minds, and they should be uh, honored for that. Uh, now, to be politically correct, there's I think a dozen diff- different forts um, and they want to take the names off of them simply because they were uh, Confederate military people. I don't think that's right.
2: You know, it's funny because, um, you know, Mike, I am a fighter. Um, and I got into my email box the other day a uh, thing from Target and because I have a Target credit card or Target, sure. as we say. And the, <laughs> the letter they sent me says, we stand with black families, communities, and our team members and are committed to ongoing resources that advance and support rebuilding and recovery efforts. They're investing $10 million to support longstanding partners, the National Urban League, and the African American Leadership Forum. Uh, we're providing 10,000 hours of pro bono counseling consulting services for black and people of color-owned small business, helping with rebuilding efforts. And they go on and on and on about that. Uh, And the more I read it, the madder I got. And I had to to shoot back. And (laughs) first off, I'm a retired cop. You know that. So I write, (laughs) what about all families? I write to them. What about all families? What about the families of the law enforcement officers who were senselessly killed by the rioters, looters? What about the families of Captain David Dorn or Officer Underwood, both black? Who takes a knee for them or grieves for them? Stop your political correctness. You just lost a cu- customer. In fact, if any first responder ever shops with you, I would be amazed. Shame on you.
7: Yeah, they're talking about Black Lives Matter. Well, <clears throat> what about the black policemen that were killed? Don't there aren't they black people, and don't their lives matter? That's a whole. It's a different thing uh, when it's not politically. Correct. And uh, look, what what happened to George Floyd was, I mean, I saw the video once and it just turned my stomach. I couldn't even watch it anymore. It was just a horrible thing. And I can certainly understand uh, that the the person that did that obviously did something wrong and should pay for it. But you can't judge an entire profession based on what one one person did. And and, and look, the, the people were protesting and they demanded justice. President Trump said the FBI and the Justice Department, in a matter of seven days, they had a, a charge uh, against the person that, that did it. They did an investigation, got enough uh, information to be able to charge the person, uh, so they filed charges against them in record amount of time. Then they were protesting. Well, how about the other three? Uh, don't don't aren't they guilty of something? Well, the FBI and the Justice Department went to work. Within seven days later, there was charges against them. So if you had a gripe against specific people uh, in the police department, it's not a gripe against the entire police department. It's a gripe against specific people. And we responded to that by filing charges um, against those people. And really, that's uh, about all the responsibility is. Now, some say, well, it's more than just those people. Um, There are many policemen that are, are like that. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. I have a feeling, um, based on the police p- policemen that I know and women uh, that I know, um, most of them, the vast majority of them, aren't anything like that. Uh, I live in a relatively small town uh, where the policemen and the uh, pl- the first responders, they're all very friendly with people in the community, and I, I've never seen one that uh, do anything that I would consider uh, out of line. I mean, look, they're, they're human beings, too, and uh, there are instances where they get a little uh, nervous about the situation that they're in, and they have to react to that, and they're trained to do that. Um, the amount of people that overreact and take advantage of this, I think, are relatively small, so let's take, let's find out who they are, Let's uh, do something to correct that situation. But you can't blame the entire police profession for what um, a few people do.
2: Actually, it's one of the
7: few professions that has the
2: least amount of corruption in it. But what happens yeah. is the media grabs a hole, that little tiny grain, and blows it up into a universe. And that is what we're seeing here. It's less than 1% corruption of the nation. Because our departments usually are run so well. When you have something like Minneapolis, that, that, that is the fault of leadership. Now that Mayor Fry ran on a platform of reforming the police department because they knew there were problems in it. The first thing he should have done was probably replace, I don't know what they call it, the police commissioner or whoever's in charge of that department. He should have done a clean, uh, cleaning from the top down. And that's not what happened. He let it percolate, and now we have a volcanic explosion. Most departments have safeguards in place. So if they see an officer getting complaint after complaint, hey, you're going to be pulled off. We're going to examine your record. Do you need retraining? Or do we have a real problem here, and maybe it's time for you to go? Now, I've worked under those conditions, and yes, it works if everything's put in place properly, but it has to be tailored to that specific department. What they want to do now is that one size fits all from the federal top down to dictate what a small town like yours will do and make it everything. Like New York city does the same thing you do. You can't always afford to do that because you're a small town. You may not have the tax dollars, but what your town does works. And this is what we have a huge problem here now. And the economic cost in, lack of proper policing and then the one size fits all, you know, tax burden. Holy moly. Look at that, that snowball coming down the side of that mountain.
7: Could be uh, huge. And you're you're absolutely right. What happens in New York city is much different than what happens in a lot of towns across the country. The the crime rates are are different. The types of crimes are uh, different and the police response is, is different. Look in a lot of these small communities uh, where the police I live in a small community the the policemen and women uh, know most of the people that live in the in, in the town uh, and when somebody does something wrong rather than uh clamp down on them uh, real hard and real fast usually it's just I see uh, the police men and women just talking to some of these people and you could just sort of show them look I know your mother I went to school with your, your mother if she ever found out what you were doing And sometimes just talk like that uh, just eases the situation. can't do that in New York, but in a small town you can do it. Well, believe it or not, if you
2: have the proper type of policing, what we call community policing, that sometimes does work. You can. If you have an office that knows the neighborhood, you know the people, the store owners, um, it, it can be done also. I remember instances where you could turn around and pull someone aside, hey, listen, I see you here all the time. I know you. I know your parents. Your mom owns this store. She works over here. You know, uh, why are you embarrassing her? And you find out how much you do have small communities within a city like New York. But then again, you've got a mayor in New York that is destroying that bond that the police had with the local
7: community. Yeah, it's, it's awful. You know, New York City had a terrible crime problem for forever. Uh, Mayor Giuliani came in and even Mayor Bloomberg, Bloomberg after him, uh, they uh, toughened up the police department. They did get tougher. They had rules. uh, And New York City became an extremely safe place. I mean, look, the city is open 24 hours a day. Um, When I go up there, uh, even if you go out late at night, and you're there till one, two o'clock in the morning. You felt very safe walking around. I can't say that today. And based on what these people are talking about doing, it will never return to what the,
4: it, it was before,
7: and that's a that's a real shame. It, it's just a real shame.
4: I, I yeah, think that I what squirty- we're seeing. I think that what we're seeing is basically the result of our educational system. These young people are being propagandized and pretty much brainwashed into hating their own country, and and in addition to that. I believe we have agitators from within the United States and outside, like, like you know George Soros. I mean, if you look at what's going on, in one, one instance, there were pallets of bricks just made at the ready for these kids to pick up and, and break windows and things. Now you've got this um, siege, the six-block siege, and they have a sign already, like a street sign of what they wanted to the call this place. You know, just happened to have one. So it's, it's, it is organized. And um, hopefully we get to the to the root of it and go after the people behind this.
7: Yeah, you know, you, you brought up a couple of good points. Uh, the educational system. Um, look, I teach at a university. Ninety-five percent, I would estimate, of the faculty <laughs> – Uh, have views that are exactly opposite to to mine and are very liberal, and they put the views onto the students without giving them the other side of the argument. I teach a course um, every year or so in ethics, and I teach it from a business uh, standpoint. What I try to do, we, we pick topics each week to discuss. We give the pros and cons and then debate. But what I try to do is I try to keep my views out of it. And I try to support both sides of an argument so they can see both sides. For instance, um, should we raise the minimum wage? Well, all, most of the class say, yes, we should because uh, people need it. It's a good thing to do, et etc. Et and I show them how to support that view. The other side says, no, we shouldn't raise the minimum wage. It ends up causing uh, unemployment, and you end up hurting just the people that you're trying to, to help. Uh, and I show them how to support that view and then i say to them look here's both views both can be supported you debate you use your critical thinking skills and that's what we're supposed to be teaching you in colleges and universities critical thinking skills use those skills and you determine what to in your view what makes the most sense rather than having a professor tell you we should raise the minimum wage all these uh, horrible people want to keep uh, the wage down they just want to keep people in poverty they're awful people Professors pound that into the head of these students, and they never get to see the other side of arguments. And it's just, it's a disservice to them and it's a disservice to the whole country.
2: Yeah, we had the uh, liberal left taking over colleges and universities starting back in the '50s and '60s, and I began to notice because I went in the '70s, and I was so good at debating the other side with my professors that they end up putting me on the debate team.
3: <laughs> you know, I, and you and know. it was don't a liberal
2: professor. That, that, it was a liberal professor. And when I debated him so well, he goes, wow, you're actually convincing me on your side. <laughs> <I> said, well, <laughs> that's the point. Change your mind.
3: <laughs> yeah. But it is yeah. important we yeah.
2: have the conversation. But the problem is we're not getting a conversation. Shouting. And the other side shutting down because they don't want to be shouted at. And that's where we're sitting today. So we've got to get society sitting down quietly to open their mouths and get the conversation rolling, which is what we're doing here.
7: Exactly. In a democratic society, we have to welcome and encourage healthy debate. That's how we move forward with healthy debate. People are not going to see things the same, and that's okay. But as long as we have healthy debate, we'll come up with a Solution. You know, I I say to people when they're arguing these things, I say, look, if you're trying to come up with a uh, you have a problem, uh, you want to find a good answer. You go into the debate trying to sell your position. You should go into the debate with the idea you want to seek a solution, not sell a position, seek a solution. Obviously, you think your position is the best solution and that's okay. And you debate and tell people why but you have to be open to the other side uh, because they're going to have some good ideas too. You may agree with them. You may not, but you have to at least listen to what they, they have to say. Um, and if you incorporate everybody's views, you can come up with a compromise position. That's a good solution that everybody might not be completely happy with, but at least everybody can live with and you move the country forward. Coming up with these solutions that um, uh, that only one side believes in and not the other uh is really uh, counterproductive to the whole idea of a democratic society
2: you know one of the things i love doing is when i get into a debate with someone is i put them in the position where say for example you're talking about minimum wage which is an excellent example and i give them the example that hey You're working minimum wage, you're busting your butt, you're doing an excellent job, your employer loves you, and next to you is a guy who is just doing the minimal amount that he needs to do. Do you want to earn the same amount of money as a guy who isn't doing half the job you're doing, or do you want to get paid better than him? And when I say that, it's like, oh, wow. Or you you always put them in that position where they're on the bad end of the side of that policy, and then – say, well, if you do this, then that's what you're going to be putting everyone into. And all of a sudden, they they seem to see where they make their error, and you can sell them on the idea that you have, which is basically it's a sales pitch. It is a sales pitch. You look at it that way. It's exactly what it is. But I have to laugh because the second you said you teach ethics, I started to cringe uh, because uh, there's always that question, what's the difference between a moral (laughs) man and an ethical man?
0: An ethical man
2: knows it's wrong to cheat on his wife, a moral man will not cheat on his wife, which is, I I love that. So when I hear ethics, I cringe.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I usually do too, uh, because mostly the ethics that is taught on college campuses uh, really is a liberal-leaning view of of ethics. Uh, And I take the the same position uh, you do. In fact, um, in my ethics class, I sometimes have the students Debate the other side's position. So, if you think the minimum wage should be raised, I want you to take the position that it should not be raised, and I want you to defend that position. By doing that, some students start to scratch their head a little bit and say, you know, maybe the other side has a little bit of merit uh, to it. Um, <laughs> and they, they go through a learning process and a critical thinking skills. And that's what colleges primarily are supposed to do. We teach specific skills, that's true, but we teach primarily critical thinking. So in, if you're in a situation, you're trying to decide what to do, you have the ability to figure it out. That's what critical thinking skills do. They help you figure things out for yourself. So you don't have to rely on somebody telling you what to think. You can figure it out for for yourself. I don't know what happened to colleges and universities. I went to uh, college in the 70s myself Uh, I don't know what's happened, but uh, things have just changed. They're so liberal now. Um, My school is going through this uh, now. Um, The the Black Lives Matter thing is big on campus now. um, I teach at Stockton University. Richard Stockton was one of the signers of the um, Declaration of Independence, the only one from New Jersey, so they named the school after him. Somebody dug up that he was a slave owner. And since he's a slave owner, we shouldn't name the uh, university after a slave owner, even though the school's nearly 50 years old. They're talking about now changing the name uh, because they don't want Stockton, Richard Stockton's name, associated with it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it, it's run amok. But uh, yeah. I had mentioned there that uh, Kaylee McInerney had a great response when she was hit with that in a press conference. Well, what about Joe Biden? He was a segregationist. He sought support from segregationists. He fought for certain issues when they were trying to desegregate, and he still remained a segregationist. He's never apologized for that. He's never said he's changed his views. What about Joe Biden? Uh, What about LBJ with his racist comments recorded in the White House? Uh, His action that enslaved generations of blacks to generational poverty. Uh, What about FDR and the internment camps? Her arguments were rock on. So, you know, if you're going to say it for one side, why don't you say it for all sides? But they can't do that because then they show how much of a hypocrite they actually are.
7: Yeah, that's exactly right. I I don't know why. Well, I mean, they they do it because they're trying to uh, push an idea uh, onto people. Um, And you're you're right. They view the conservative uh, voices and what conservatives say in a much different uh, light than they uh, view what the liberals say. Look at what Donald Trump has, has to go through. I think what he's done in the three and a half years he's been in office is remarkable, especially considering every single Democrat votes against him. I saw three studies that said over 90% of the coverage in the media about Donald Trump is negative. And he's got some members of his own party, uh, Mitt Romney, those kind of people who are also against him. In spite of all that, he's been able to come up with some remarkable accomplishments. Look what he did before the virus. Look what he did to the uh, economy. If you really want to help african americans instead of just giving them free stuff which is what the democrats do president trump gave them what they really want opportunity they don't want free stuff they take it because they don't have any other choice but they really don't want that what they want is the opportunity to earn enough income to buy their own stuff so they're not dependent on anybody else and they have that feeling of dignity and that's exactly what president Trump did. The unemployment rate for minorities prior to the coronavirus was at historical lows. Wages were rising at the fastest rate in decades, and uh, these people that have been locked into food stamps and welfare uh, and Section 8 housing for their entire lives were seeing opportunity for them to earn enough income that they can pay for all those things themselves and not have to rely on the federal government. They now they're willing and able to now take on individual responsibility rather than what the Democrats are pushing, which is social responsibility. And that social responsibility will lead to a stagnant economy, as we saw during the Obama uh, Biden administration for eight years. Well,
5: people
2: can find your articles all over the place, but you also maintain a blog. Excuse me, at muckrake.com backslash your name, Michael Dash Bustler. And, you know, I had a laugh because I was poking around when I was doing my homework. And uh, Coming News uh, had posted one of your articles, the one that's official, the 2020 recession started in February, but likely ended in May. And the cartoon yeah. was one of Bronco's make a liberal cry and standing behind these liberals the media and the never trumpers you've got the economic report donald trump holding it up with the v-shaped recovery in it and i cracked up Uh, but you've got excellent articles and we have no time left to speak about the rest of them so i'm going to tell people to go to your website which is on muckrake.com key in your name michael Busler, and just put a dash in the middle michael you do such good work and i wanted to thank you for all the hard work you do
7: well thank you, Annie. It's my pleasure to be here. I look forward to doing this again.
2: All right. Have a blessed day and enjoy your weekend. Thank
7: you.
2: Thank All you. right. Check Bye-bye. check out Dr. Michael Butler. Let me get my little thing here working now. And we want to welcome aboard onto the show our latest victim to succumb to the radio chickadee, Ken LaCourt. Good afternoon, Ken. How are you today? <laughs>
8: I'm doing great and I love that intro. <laughs>
2: Well, I had to change my nickname. For the last 10 years, I've been known as the Radio Chick, and there is someone out of New York uh, that goes by that moniker, and I was completely unaware. But I'm down here in South Carolina. What do I care about what's going on in New York? And she emailed me a bunch of nasty emails threatening with trademark infringement and everything else. So I have to go back and forth and telling her, oh, gee, my whole two listeners are really going to – take a deep deep
8: deep deep dig into your tri-state area market well really. you should you should you should turn the tables on her and have call her up and and have people tell her that that name is sexist and has no place a chick has no place in today's society and that she needs to fall on her sword quit her radio show and and go get a job at some other profession <laughs>
2: I kind of like insinuated that in some of my emails, but we, I settled on doing a WC fields and my little chickadee. You
8: know?
3: <laughs> well, oh look, that's, man. That's, that's
8: the political atmosphere these days. That's actually, you know, we're, we're laughing about it, but that's going on daily right now. I mean, I mean, I just finished up a story about some gal who wrote up a very reasonable and fact filled piece saying, uh, why the statistics, in her view, didn't support the concept of institutional racism in the justice justice system in America, and she got fired from her college newspaper. She has death threats coming in. I mean, you know, these days that that little anecdote is is just a day that ends in why it seems like.
3: Yeah, you know,
2: people are human beings. They've got their likes and dislikes. But to say there's an institutional racism in law enforcement. Have you ever looked at the ranks of the men and women serving in uniform? You'd be surprised how many, quote, minorities exist. You know, when I was applying to the to the department for NYPD, actually Nassau County before I went for NYPD, um, Nassau County turned around and said, sorry, we're not hiring uh, you. And I said, why? She goes, you're white. I said, really? I said, I thought as a female I would be considered a minority. She goes, no, you have to be black or Hispanic. A lot of these departments are deliberately recruiting minorities, making them the majority out there in the field. So when you say systematic racism, how do you look at an officer that is a black female or a male Hispanic and tell them that you're racist against your own race?
8: Yeah, no, look, a lot of this has gotten turned on its head. and, And, you know, not to deny that racism doesn't exist anywhere, but when you look at systems where, Racial, racial numbers and racial preferences are used on an open and, and obvious way. It's it's always against whites and 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 uh, and, and and Asians, whether that's college admissions, whether that's uh, special programs in the government for uh, for for contractors, whether it's uh, a number of things, uh, hiring still in, in other places. So it's uh, anyhow. I don't know if that's the topic you wanted to get going on, but uh, here's what. Where- <laughs>
2: Oh, no. Also, as a small business owner, my husband experienced it in his businesses before I married him, and I had it, just trying to get an SBA loan. Sorry, you're not a minority. We're now concentrating on minorities. You need to do a conventional loan and not an SBA. You you see it in government, but it's the exact opposite of what you expect. And you had uh, been talking about cancel culture, and this is what we're seeing right now with these protests and these riots. And people are being silenced and TV shows pulling off the air, uh, people's accounts being canceled on social media, like, such as Facebook, left and right, because we don't
8: think the same way they do. Yeah, it's, it's become a, 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 an increasing tactic, primarily by the left, to, to if, you can't, if you can't beat them, silence them. Um, you know, we saw it popping up kind of uncomfortably on college campuses, probably starting about five or six years ago when cons- a conservative speaker would want to go and, uh, and speak at UC Berkeley or, or a lot of colleges, and they lit fires. They, they barricaded things. They would blow whistles. They would do everything that they can um, to stop that. Uh, my daughter, two years ago, uh, her first month at William & Mary, she actually went to go hear a UC, uh, uh, an ACLU speaker. And and a bunch of white kids purporting to represent Black Lives America went and protested it and wouldn't let that woman speak. And that was kind of her uh, her intro to, to college was the ACLU speaker was too conservative to be allowed to, to say her words out on campus. My daughter was disgusted on it. But it's a growing tactic. And those kids that graduated five years ago from college blowing whistles at speakers they didn't like, well – now they're journalists and now they're executives at Facebook and Twitter and all of those places. And they're bringing that same tactic and using it more and more to, these days. And, and and I find that more dangerous than liberal bias in the media. I find it more dangerous than coronavirus. I find it more dangerous than writing than in the streets, because when you when you exclude certain ways of thinking, it always ends bad in a society and, and whether it 1936 hey we're blaming the jews for everything and if you think something differently we're going to shut you down and make your life bad or whether it was was you know parts of cambodia when you know you you speak english we're going to kill you and and you know that's the the, the exclusion of ideas is is, uh, is is a very very dangerous precedent and 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 we're we're, we're growing and we're experiencing that more and more in america
2: and unfortunately, it's turned violent, and people are losing their lives. As my co-host uh, pointed out earlier, uh, Curtis uh, had mentioned that last year uh, there were only ten deaths in police custody, and in just this few, what was it about a week and a half, two weeks now since uh, Floyd was killed, we've got close to twenty or more civilians that have been killed by the rioters. And why not, don't even count in the number of cops that have been injured or killed um, because yeah. of these riots. And I mentioned earlier, just yeah, before I you came that on, two
6: of them, them happened to be black.
8: Earlier stat was referring, I think that earlier 10, 10 number was referring to something a little bit different. Because I think there was about, last year, there was about 1,000 police officer involved shootings in, in America. I think 10 of them turned out to be unarmed black uh, unarmed black people on it Because uh, I remember Tucker Carlson did a did Kind of a show where he then went through those Ten and you know And and, yeah, and, was- and they were varying degrees of, of you know some of them were like Yeah the guy was in a car trying to run people over And there were some that were like Oh my gosh that's horrific they shot a gal Through her window um, um, and, and, and in most of those cases The cops were charged
2: Yeah and the System works if you let it Work you know and now We have Minnesota, where within days, seven days, Trump sends Barr and the DOJ up there. The arrests are made. The charges are then brought forward against these officers. Normally, an investigation like that can take months with the person suspended, not fired, but the person was fired immediately, and then charges were brought forth. It was the federal DOJ. It wasn't the state attorney general. Oh, by the way, uh, isn't that Keith
8: Ellison? Um, they weren't charged federally, were they? I believe so. I don't know if they were. No, they I think. Were charged I, federally, think but... sure. I I know that they. I know that they put in a, a DOJ investigation, but um, and and that did predate before the state came out and uh, and, and 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 filed charges. But the, but the murder charges have been filed by uh, by by Minneapolis, I believe, by by whoever the district attorney there is. Um, and no, yet, yeah, fast now... and and pardon. Me? No no, 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 just go ahead, please. Finish. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that was, uh, I think that was the case.
2: Now, um, with these riders, these antifa out there, we've got now Seattle. Six blocks in Seattle is a no man's zone. It's a no go zone, basically, is what they've put up. And now Seattle's going. Well, we're, we can't do too much about this. The governor of the state is saying, oh, well, we can't do too much about this. In other words, just have a free for all. Go shopping for free, you know. And oh, by the way, we'll be sending you more stimulus money too. So even though you've created your own little kingdom within the United States, we'll still,
8: you know, send you your
2: stimulus check. <laughs> you know, to me, it's, it's a great uh,
8: example. Could you, could you imagine if a if a handful of, of guys wearing MAGA caps and some of them are armed? decided to literally take over six blocks of any American city including a police station which then the police would then went and abandon that that had estimates are three to four hundred people live in that zone or you know have have an apartment there it just it's like just fantasize for a second about if a, if a bunch of trump type guys took over a part of a city like that it would be worldwide front page headlines it would be one of the most crazy oh my god america is turning into you know the revolution has started it would have been uh, just something else I and mean, in here you know like they're trying to they're saying oh it's not that big of a deal and and this and that and literally i went to cnn yesterday and i and i looked to see because you know fox is obviously planted up planet up probably bigger than it is and i wanted to see how much they were uh, how much cnn was was downplaying it the only article they had on 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 the front page of their website out of hundreds of articles relating to this was an article bitching about conservative media saying oh well they're you know they said it was a large area of town and it's only six square blocks they they said it was antifa and we're not quite sure it was antifa it was it was one of the the, the the most surreal things I've read from CNN, at least in the past week or two.
2: No, they didn't you get know, a hint that they were all wearing black hoodies and gloves. No, they didn't get a little mm-hmm. hint from that. You know, A little bit too reminiscent of Crystal Kristallnacht. When I first wow. saw uh, – what the heck was that college in California? The very first time they started rioting. And the second I saw them with these masks, hoods, and dark clothing and everything else, that's exactly what I thought when they were breaking the windows,
8: crystal knocks.
2: which is – they are all, instead of anti-fascists, they are
8: fascists. Yeah, I, lo- I love the fact that people just buy the notion. It's like if you just call yourself anti-fascist uh, um, and you're on that side, it's like a guy calling himself an anti-rapist and going around raping people and saying, wait a second, I'm an anti-rapist. It, it, was, a little, it was a little bizarre.
4: You know, I may be wrong, but I believe this phenomenon where city and state leadership capitulate to these protesters, I believe it began with this incident in Baltimore a couple of years ago when the mayor said to, you know, the cops, um, you know, stand down. They just need to vent. So we'll, we'll give them a few days to vent. And now I think that's a model that they're using now the protesters you know for um existing um protests and future what are your thoughts
8: i think you're i I think you know certainly i mean look you don't want to live in a society where people go out and protest and they get shot in the head right we don't want to we don't want to be china with tanks rolling over kids with you know who are in in tiananmen square so but on the other hand you're you're 100 right it's like what before, I, I, I'm just a little too young to remember the, uh, the Watts riots and, and, and the, and the national, national riots, 67, 68. I clearly remember 1992 after the Rodney King verdict in Los Angeles, where I lived at the point. And the signal that started that riot was when uh, uh, that, that truck driver, Reginald Denny, was pulled out of his truck and beaten, beaten by some thugs for 10, 15 minutes, it was broadcast live because there was a helicopter over it, and the police had hunkered down. Now, some, some subsequently said, and they might have been right, that Daryl Gates, who was the police chief,
6: was like, hey, you guys
8: want to bitch about the police? Fine. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll back off for a little bit and we'll see how you like it. Um, and that, that very well could have been true. But certainly there is a signal to people that, okay, there is no more law and order. Um, um, and in Minneapolis, we saw it when, when you know, when, when the gang took over a police precinct and the police made no attempt to go to go take that back, that was a very clear signal. There's no, at least, there's no law and order. You can do what you want to do. And that's why you would see these protests go very quickly from, and I saw some of the live stuff, uh, uh, you know, they go very quickly from people being happy and, and running around. It was kind of a party atmosphere to sometimes very quickly then a couple of kids would start some fires and then they were breaking things and, 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 and doing that. So I think you're absolutely right that, you know, in these, whenever you give that signal that whatever goes, goes, well, then you're going to get whatever goes.
2: You know, what gets me is the massive uh, looting. Um, what people haven't been talking about, because there are hard, have been stories all over the place, that using social network and your smart devices – gangs would get together and say, all right, we're going to target this grocery store or this gas station or this department store. And the looting has become like a cultural norm. And, of course, a lot is not done. So what? You lost some property. So what? The owner of the store got their butt beat. Uh, that's, that's all that happened, and that's, that's fine. That attitude has now spilled over into what is happening here today. They know that if they go in and loot, it's cops are going to take a long time to get there if they get there in time. And we're going to get ourselves free TVs and new sneaks and whatever else we want.
8: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's pretty much calmed down with the possible exception of, of Seattle. I mean, last week was, was even last weekend was, was, was pretty sedate, I want to say, in, in most areas. And, you know, on one hand, you you know, people were out there just really protesting and complaining about, something they believe is a problem it's like hey that's america i may i may disagree with you i may think that nope that police brutality is about the number eight or 12 problem with with some communities not the number one or two problem um but uh yeah no certainly uh certainly you know when it goes overboard it's uh it's it's it's, it's an ugly and unhappy thing but look you know the media the, the national media you know they love this stuff they uh they, you know i mean You've watched the way that, I mean, do you remember just two weeks, a week before all these protests were going out, if you went to church, you were basically a murderer. You wanted to kill grandma to give her coronavirus because you had the temerity to go to a church, and and cops were citing people, uh, cops were giving tickets to people and taking down their, their license plate numbers in church parking lots or anything like that. Then these things came in, and the media, of course, turned it a hundred percent because they're all falling all over themselves to signal how anti-racist they are. And of course, you know, every corporate logo is now is now you know every every email I get from somebody is is is, is explaining how you know how really 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 anti-racist they are, which I guess is good to hear. Um, um, but the, but the media certainly had a hand in in this in this this from from the kicking up of of and 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 paying so much individual attention to certain types of racism i mean i a national story some white guy he was even a brit on a a plane said some snotty things to a black gal um and it was and it was racist and bad he was you know he was a he was a six or a seven uh on 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 how bad of a person he was being it was like literally like one guy sitting on a plane and it got the nationwide story and and you know they use those those anecdotal evidences uh, that, that they would pound in to, to go and push a narrative that that a lot of people believe a lot of people don't believe it and and it ended up with, with streets on fire and, and and nobody should really be surprised at that
2: you know it, it's funny because they have to find the stories to sell their point of view news you turn on the news and you got actual news you never knew what side of the political fence and that uh, that that anchor had for the longest time we had no idea what yeah. side of the fence walter cronkite was on but suddenly now it's no longer about the events occurring it's now about the on-air talent and yeah, this is not a new show right.
8: and and that and look this has happened with all all of you know most almost all of our our, our media um, and and I'm, I'm a big believer that it's actually more driven by money than, than about politics, although certainly these days with Trump in here. It, it predated Donald Trump. In fact, I actually think that that new style of media allowed a Donald Trump person to, to become president. Um, you know, I'll never forget in the Obama reelection against Mitt Romney turning to one of my editors. I was running FoxNews.com at the time. And, and I'm like, have you ever seen the media this blast in its life? And he was like, no, I really haven't. And of course, that was those are the quaint days. But a couple things started happening. One was 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 some business models started changing. Uh, the biggest aspect of that was the internet. Um, so you know we remember the old or in the history books the old the old days of, of, of yellow journalism where you'd see the, the picture of a kid ringing a bell out with with the with the, with the with the billboard with the newspaper on front of it screaming you know twelve dead in house fire or whatnot. And those were driven – those were headline-driven driven because if you had the best headline on that newspaper, you sold the most newspapers that day. And that's what, that's what was a, a large driver of what we now call yellow journalism of, of the turn of the century. Well, now the same thing is happening except instead of every newspaper, it's literally every headline. If you put out a good commonsensical headline that, that, is, that is fair and balanced and does all those things – it's you know it, it's not going to get picked up and shared on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and it's and it's not going to get it's not going to make you that kind of money that if you play to your side saying oh my gosh Trump was just slandered by the New York Times that story gets shared and and when you click on that story on on your on your phone or on your computer that news organization gets their penny in advertising from that so. They 've won when you 've clicked on it, and, and that click-based journalism really, really drove extreme, it drove, it drove opinion, it drove all those things. Similar, similar thing happened on, on TV. I mean, I, when, I worked, when I first went to work at Fox News in 1998, you know, we were very strict about, OK, we had our, our primetime shows, you know, O'Reilly and, and whatnot. Everything else was really straight news, except for the morning show and, and the primetime. Well, over the years, and we were also a heck of a lot more balanced in the sense that, you know, we were 15 degrees to the right. Everybody else was at least 15 degrees to the left. But, you know, we had Hannity and Combs. They had a show together, you know, a left-right talk thing. We had, uh, uh, we had Bill O'Reilly, and we also had Greta Van Susteren. So it was a very balanced thing. Whereas, but then as time went out, what started happening was those, those opinion shows Started drawing much bigger audiences. People didn't want to watch the straight news stuff as much. They wanted to watch the, they wanted to watch Janine Pirro, you know, scream out about her, you know, give give her opinion on things and do all that. Those shows were cheaper to produce, made a lot more money, and now, you know, I think both CNN and Fox and all they're they're playing to their base much more strongly, and and less by straight news and more by kind of news mixed in with opinion. So between that and, and the Internet, I think, uh, I think we're in a new world order with the media, and, and I think we're going to be stuck with it for a few years. Now, the downside to conservatives is that 85% of the media is left-wing. So as they, start, as they stop being referees and they start being really heavy promoters, it looks like the, you know, the entire national press corps is basically working for the Democratic Party, uh, you know, with the exception of Fox and some radio and a few, a few online sites um and and you know that's a new reality that, that we're, we're you know when you and i grew up we kind of looked at 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 the press as the referees and yeah maybe they were a little liberal maybe they maybe they should have done this or should have done that now they, they're they're players and they're partisans and and people haven't figured that all out yet i think conservatives have more because they're they're, they're facing the brunt of it more often But uh, it's a very, very different world, and and people need to be aware of that, and and most aren't still.
2: Well, the the old saying, if it bleeds, it leads. They just found a new way in getting it, you know, to make it look like everything is bleeding. And they're just using a different format. You know, I remember delivering the Long Island Press on Long Island. It was actually my brother's route, and he wouldn't do it, so I ended up doing it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that was when journalism, you actually opened the newspaper to read the news. But you open a newspaper today where one of these blurbs will come on your smart device, the headlines are so skewed. One of them I looked at said uh, 1.5 million uh, Americans applied for unemployment. Uh, what the headline makes you think is that, oh my God, the number of people unemployed is exploding. They're not saying those number of applications have actually dropped compared to the previous months. No, they make it sound like massive unemployment. All of America is unemployed, and this is how they they catch you. They hook you, and then they give you a piece that's not pure news but all
8: opinion. Well, we um, and and look, you can lie you can lie very well by telling the truth um, through no opinion. I, I, I mean, I can say say you know judge gave five speeches to gay to, to gay audiences as he was wearing, you know when he was wearing his underwear, and that could be a very true statement. And if you just leave out the facts that he was wearing a suit, a tie, and some shoes, that, that and, and that's really what they're doing these days. I mean, look, look. The New York Times went from being a gold standard with brilliant people running that. The smart it really deserved its place as one of the best newspapers in U.S. history. And now when they've decided to throw away any concept of, of, of intellectual honesty, they, are, they, they publish pieces, and they do this every day, that have true facts but just omit, omit the ones from one side and play up the ones from another side and, and, and can create a lie by telling true facts. It's a, uh, you know, I was before an audience once, and I said, you know, I could send two reporters here. And, and this was a – it was like a, uh, a, it was a local community discussion of politics in the media. It was very nice. It was very civilized. It was, it was a cool thing. And I said, you know, if I told that one reporter to, to just find the most malcontented people here and, find, and get the, the worst little snarky quote that we had and, and a couple people complaining about it, you could create an image of what happened here that is radically different than what actually happened and at that point, it's like, even without lying, again, it's, it's like you know, CNN and Fox could send a reporter to a, 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 a Donald Trump rally. And Fox could find that cherry blossom family that are good, and they drove up from uh, or drove down from South Carolina and, and you know talked about how uplifting they were. And they were happy to hear the president's words talking about how we need to fight unemployment and whatnot. And the report would be so radically different. From a CNN who told their reporter, "Find me a Nazi, find me a racist. You can do it. There's 50,000 people there, right? You, you If you can't go and find a couple jar-headed racists out of 50,000 people, you're not working for us anymore." And and they could tell almost the exact opposite story, and it's just so, you know, it, it consumers when people stop trying to play fair, uh, even if they're playing with the truth, it, it creates. It creates something that you can't, you, you know, it forces consumers to have to get their news from multiple outlets or at least people that they know they trust. And uh, we're in a very weird transition period in America with that, I, I believe.
2: As it, you're absolutely true. You know, you cannot accept a single source for where you're getting your information from. You know, preparing for a show like this, and I'm sure when you do it with yours, um, you have the LaCourte News, your last name. Um, you have to look at other areas first before you put your pieces together. Now this is a purely opinion show. This I don't tell people I'm giving them news. I'm saying this is my opinion. This is where I'm that's getting what it I from think.
8: And, and this is why trust I trust my values. I, I agree with my values or not and then listen to something
2: else.
7: Absolutely.
2: Exactly. And this is what we need more of and that's why the social uh, media that we have these these platforms we have are so wonderful and why they're growing so fast. You know, you came up the hard way from, you know, regular journalism going into Fox News and, and managing there, uh, but now you have your own,
8: uh, people can find that exactly where can they find court News? Well, they can't find it on Facebook, because I had three and a half million followers and was banned from Facebook, and I still can't get a straight answer on why they did that. Um, but they can find it at LaCorte News, L-A-C-O-R-T-E News dot com. And, um, uh, and and we spent a lot of time really looking at – I mean, we don't publish all the news that's out there. We, we publish a lot, you know, a lot of stories from a conservative angle that are fair but have been underplayed in the media or wrongly played in the media. We spent a lot of time looking at you know, these referees with their thumbs away on the scales and, and how the media twists things around and, and do that. And, and we also spent a whole lot of, uh, of, of, our, of our time looking at kind of the growing censorship that, that we're starting to see online. Which I think is out of out of all of the trends, the most troubling trend that I, I see coming up. The the cancel culture, when it when it's you know people people turning off the show, cops or canceling that is one thing. When it's increasing to basically our our, our town square in America, which really is social media, and when they're when they're zapping those those concepts, you know, when when they're when they're intentionally washing down certain types of opinion, that's, uh, that's, that's to me, a, a very troublesome thing.
2: You know, they've got these you know, bots out there now trolling for things inside your articles or in your, your hashtag. So if God forbid you have Antifa listed, which I deliberately use the hashtag Antifa, um, <laughs> they, they're going to pull you. And, and that's the saddening thing. They are doing the censorship, and that's not, that's not freedom. That's not liberty and that's not equality. That's tyranny. And yeah, and, and, and it, it brings to this, up really no, 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 the no, no, same no.
8: on what can we do and what should
2: we do. Absolutely. I just got to, I forgot to change the minutes on this. Oh my goodness. Hang on, just bear with me for a second. There we go. And okay. save it. All right. Ken, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I and mean, I welcome you back, people, to go to sure. your website, like Court News. And uh, God bless. All right. Thank you. Thank you for your time. It was a fun, fun conversation.
4: Absolutely. Take care, Ken. All
2: right. Ken No, LaCour- oh, no, 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 no. Don't stop. It shouldn't. It shouldn't stop. Oh, no, 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 no. Please don't do this to me. Don't do this to me. It should be reading 180 minutes. So let's try this. Make sure that we can get our guest in online here. And welcome Kathy Barnett, who is running for Congress at the state of uh, Pennsylvania District Four. Good afternoon, Kathy. How are you today?
0: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
2: Yeah. Minutes on the show, the clock should have said 180 minutes and it said 120. It's corrected now, so we're not going to lose you. Good. (laughs) You you have a book out which is called Black and Conservative in America. And for some reason, the left, no, this has changed. This is showing not 10 seconds. It's showing an hour left. Let's hope it doesn't knock us off. Oh, please don't do that to me. Anyway, um for some reason the left seems they own the black vote and that you don't think independently.
0: Yeah, you know, uh and the and and the um the entire title of my book is Nothing to Lose, everything to gain being black and conservative in America. Um, because that's what we have in this country. I mean, uh black people have been or are the most loyal uh, constituents of the Democrat Party. There is no block of people more loyal to the Democrats than the black vote. And I often ask black people, what exactly have we gotten for our loyalty? We know what the Democrat Party gets. They cannot secure the White House without at least getting Uh, 85 to 90 percent of our vote but what exactly have we gotten uh, in return for our loyalty because our schools are still some of the worst schools in the nation our streets are some of the most dangerous streets in america uh high unemployment low home ownership and so it's beginning to challenge you, you have to begin to challenge uh the narrative because it's a very true i understand why people feel as though if you're black you must vote democrat um and i understand the arrogance and even maybe racist racism of joe biden to assume that if i don't vote for him then i must not be black but we have to begin to chip 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 away at that narrative by helping black people realize that democrats have done nothing for us
2: well you know on your website you've got a marvelous one that explains your position on everything you talk about the democratic and they hammer these one things like universal health care, uh, universal child care. You know, everything is where government has to become the nanny state. And they've actually sold people on the idea that government knows better for them how to live their lives than they do for themselves.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, and we're experiencing uh, what it would feel like to live in a nanny state. We're where uh, many of us across this nation, where we're still under a liberal democrat rule, we are experiencing even to this day a very strong authoritarian power grab in the state of Pennsylvania, for example, the overwhelming majority of the state is still on lockdown uh you know and we and we are you know or maybe in some some red, yellow, green phase, which really means nothing at all, because we're still having to kowtow down to the edicts of a dictatorial uh, governor. And so, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it, you know, it, so everyone is beginning to get a really good sense of what it feels like when Democrats say, you just shut up, sit down, we'll take care of you. And I think it's very amazing how they just keep coming up with one, welfare program after another. They're not calling it welfare program. They're calling it direct cash payment, or they're calling it a stimulus package. But it's essentially nothing more than a glorified welfare program for the masses. And I believe that there's that there's logic to Democrats' madness. Uh, they, like in my particular state and in several others where we're still on lockdown for the most part, people are on the verge of losing everything losing their livelihoods completely people are running through their retirement running through uh the money they set aside for their kids uh, college education just running through things just to pay for the basics so therefore as, as we continue to deplete our savings and when democrats come to us and say oh i have universal something universal education even the staunchest conservative is going to Think twice about saying no, because right now we're running through our savings.
3: Kathy.
2: I'm sorry, uh, Curtis, I was going to say, it's their excuse for the mandatory, uh, uh, what is the word I'm thinking of? uh, Mandatory paycheck. No, paycheck. This way the (laughs) government will guarantee you a paycheck even if you're not working. They'll guarantee well, we already the see child. that. Yeah, this is what they're offering you, but in order to do that, they've got to destroy you to make you dependent upon
0: them. Exactly yeah. right, and we're, and we're and we're seeing that right now with the six hundred dollar uh, stipend, right? That every I mean, like just extra six hundred dollars, and we're seeing what that is doing. In many cases, it is the incentivizing people from getting up, getting out, and creating a life for yourself because I'm making more money if I stay home than if I – so Democrats, I mean, let me tell you, I I do not believe – Uh, you know, that Democrats are the reason for COVID-19, but boy, oh boy, are they um, exploiting it to their benefit, I earnestly believe. Boy, oh boy, are they, you know, uh, uh, getting as much mileage out of this as they possibly can because they are giving people a taste of what it feels like to, hey, we'll just send you an extra $600, Six hundred dollars, an extra thousand dollars a month. Won't you like that? People are now. It's no longer in. The, it's no longer a theory, but now we're experiencing that, and that may be very tempting to you know to a certain segment of our nation. Um, and then at the same time as we people, you know, uh, as others are beginning to run through the savings that they had on the side, it makes us. It puts us into a precarious situation, making us a little bit more. Uh, Hesitant to deny A big brother government that wants To pay for everything
2: Curtis go ahead
4: Yeah I was Want to say that this is a, a Teachable moment for Republicans In the state of Pennsylvania I mean with this I call it house arrest Where government tells you You know when you can leave your house And there's curfews and things like that. That's, that's, that's a good example of what it would be like if we went socialist. Now, I was born in Philadelphia. Matter of fact, I just returned from Philadelphia yesterday. And I see two sides. I see some people who are finally waking up and, and seeing what's really going on. And then you've got that other group who are very hostile, when it comes to the subject of Trump and Republicans, and I mean it's so toxic, it's to the point of um, near violence. You know, they they want to lash out at you, and um, I just I'm saddened by it. You know, because yeah. what happened to the the days where you can um, you know have different ideas Agree to
0: disagree, from right? other
4: people, right? So I'm. And one, on one, you know, hand, I'm I'm happy that some people are waking up. On the other hand, you know, it's depressing that people would have drank the Kool-Aid that the left has been serving for you know the last five or six decades. You know, that's, you know, I mean, I well, you say can even. That.
0: Well, no, I mean, I think it's an excellent observation. I mean, you can just see, you know, the way the president uh, steered us as a nation through COVID-19. For all we knew, COVID-19 could have been a Martian from a different planet. We had no idea what we were contending with. All we saw were little red dots popping up all over the globe, and now it was here in our country. That's all we, we knew it was popping up all over the all over the globe, uh killing people at a, at an alarming pace. And now it was here um on our shores. And then we saw a president being very steady, very focused, very methodical, going outside of bureaucrats to bring in the private sector. We saw him take decisive decisions with closing the border Uh, The travel uh, back and forth to China, we saw the Democrats, we saw Joe Biden and others come out immediately and call him a racist. Uh, We had Dr. Fauci at WHO right before that telling everyone, you know, there's no proof that this is human to human contact. And you see the president on January 28th, even after the WHO statement, even after Dr. Fauci's statement, come out and make a very decision that today perhaps saved millions of lives. And you would think that after all of that, after how he so graciously worked with governors who who were negligent in their job, their responsibility to adequately prepare and to have an adequate number of PPE and uh, ventilators and all of those things in store. And you see this president graciously working with everyone, making sure everyone had everything. Not one American who needed a ventilator did not get a ventilator. And you would think, after all of that, that the minds of those who are just completely blind, from my view, um, with rage and anger, you would think they would say, "Oh wait, wait a minute, this is a good job." It's the complete opposite. They, I mean, like they are blaming him for it. In fact, <laughs> I mean, and you and you sit there looking kind of dumbfounded, like what kind of. Re- what reality are you living in? And you realize very quickly that there are some people who just, I mean, they're so filled with hate. Um, there's absolutely nothing you can do. And then you recognize there are those who have an ear to hear, and they—and those are the ones that people like us should be talking to and speaking out and having conversation. There are those you will never be able to convince. The key for us is to readily identify them Pivot away from them and move forward.
4: And hopefully, when you get in office, you will have some say in um, changing our educational system—the oh, very ones that are putting out little Marxists and socialists.
0: I know, right? Let me tell you: the the biggest issue in the black community is not policing. Uh, the biggest issue in the black community uh, is our outsiders. Who typically don't look like the residents who live in those inner cities, outsiders coming in to tell black folks what their problems are, and then outsiders dreaming up, reimagining ways to resolve those problems you know, out of all the tragedies that we've seen over the past couple of weeks, out of all the mayhem that we've experienced as a nation, my hope is is that the black community does not allow these typically white liberal outsiders to come in and tell us who we are, tell us what our problems are, and all we're left with at the end of this is having some, you know, pretty neat, Marches and listening to pretty little speeches. Hopefully, we recognize that what the issue is are these. Typically, white liberals coming into our community and trying to define us and exclude us at the exact same time from being at the table and having a having a conversation, being a part of the conversation about how to redesign um, our community. That is our number one issue. I earnestly believe that that is the black community's number one issue, is constantly pivoting and allowing outsiders to come in and tell us what our problems are at the exact same time that they exclude us from the table where these discussions are being had.
2: You know, with this COVID virus, we're seeing a lot of people now homeschooling their kids. Um, there's going to be a gap. We're going to lose a generation of education here because not everyone is able to homeschool their kids. If you have someone at the poverty <laughs> line and they're a single parent, that child is not being homeschooled. That child's running amok in the neighborhood
0: uh you we're going to maybe 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 i mean i mean you maybe me not necessarily because in the because in most of these public schools what what exactly are they learning um you know we just heard little marxists being popped out right that america is racist right remember when donald trump won and you had all these schools Uh, in the elementary level, uh, teaching something completely apart from what most parents would think the curriculum would be. Now, I've homeschooled my kids for the past six years, and you're right, it is a – an all-consuming job. Uh, it takes every part. It, it impacts every single aspect of your life in order to do it well. And some people are made for it. Some people can learn to make it a part of their lives. And some people, quite frankly, should just send their kids to public schools. But I don't know if this one. Again, one of my hopes is that coming out of this. Parents will remember, will begin to reprioritize what's most important. Having to spend that much quality time with your family, hopefully my goal is, is that people begin to realize exactly how much of their children's lives they're missing, um, how much of their children's lives are being distorted by other people teaching your children what is important, what's not important, and hopefully parents will begin to see uh, uh, what's most important to them. There are some things that people on the outside of our homes, again, will try to tell us are is most important, but really it's not at the end of the day. We've just been manipulated to believe that what they tell us is important are the things that are important to us. I'm hopeful that we will come out of this with a generation who understands uh, uh, the value of family, the importance of family, uh, the importance of just sitting down and having a meal together and talking to one another and not allowing your schedule to be so overwhelmed with, you know, uh, activities and events and all of that. But you can just sit down as a family and learn how to interact with one another.
2: Well, here's the big thing. You know. With public schooling, the idea is to dehumanize. As with in Obamacare, when it was written, we were, not, we were not described as patients. We were described as units. And when we dehumanize each other, our lives lose value to another individual. We're not seen as being as equally human as them. Bringing the families into home together, forcing them to live under one roof, is bringing back the reality that hey we're all human beings Um, maybe it might help change a generation but this is the problem everything is desensitized you're on your smart device and if you are talking to quote a friend they're just a text coming up on your screen or a video that you're looking at they're not human and this is the problem we have with today's society. We no longer look at each other as people of value. And look what they're doing to the pre-born. I keep asking the question, and no one has given me an answer. If matter, why are they protesting the way they're doing and not in front of a planned parenthood? You happen to have been a child a product of a rape. Now, had your mother chosen to abort you? You would not have the beautiful family. You would not be here running for office to make your state a better state.
0: You know, you know I mean, I, I believe that all life has value. I believe all life has value at, um, at, at both ends of the spectrum. I am pro life. uh, And although someone may not uh, appreciate my position in being pro life, you cannot argue with my story. And my story is, as you've mentioned, and uh, people can go out and look at, um, you know, there's been um, store videos uh, done on my Genesis. Um, that 's my story, um and had my grandmother actually, because my mother was so young, had my grandmother chose differently, then my life and everything that comes from me uh, would not exist. I think about that quite often, actually. I look at my children and I see the wonderful little people that they are and how and how great what a wonderful impact that they're going to make in our society. Um, they would not exist, Um, and I believe that my life has value, and I'm very grateful for those who saw my mother, who saw me, and the very unfortunate circumstances uh, surrounding my conception, and still saw value in my life coming forward. I'm very, I'm eternally grateful uh, to all those who, who took part in that decision. It was not an easy decision. I cannot, I have, my daughter herself is 11 years old. I, I couldn't, I could never imagine such a wrong being inflicted upon her little body, uh, her little soul. Um, and so I'm very grateful that, you know, um, out of such ashes that, you know, something beautiful has come out of it. Um, and as I look at my babies, um, it, it's something beautiful and I'm very grateful.
2: Well, you're right about how this can only happen in America. You know, you went on, you served in the military, you put yourself through college, uh, you were able to create who you are, and that can only occur here in America because of the way we were founded. You can be coming from nothing. It doesn't matter what family you come from. You can come from absolute, utter poverty to become president of the United States. (laughs)
0: You know, I mean, um, and I feel as though, uh, in part, I I crawled from up under a rock. I mean, I'm a little black girl who grew up on a pig farm in southern Alabama. I grew up below the bottom rung of the economic ladder. I had to look up to see the bottom rung of the economic ladder. I grew up in a home with no insulation, no running water, an outhouse in the back and a well on the side. My family Uh, A portion of my family have been doing um, a a deeper dive, trying to, you know, piece together our heritage. And we just came across a photo of my great, great, great grandmother, Rhoda. And I remember hearing people talk about Grandma Rhoda, but this is my first time seeing her. And, you know, she was born in 1846. She was a slave. And I grew up. The house I just described, I grew up in the same house as she lived in, um, and I recognize the power of that. I have the blood of slaves from both sides of my family running through my blood, and as I have often told my children we uh, we above all have an obligation to live well in this nation. Uh, you know we have an obli- we have a debt to repay. And I think about that often. I talk about it throughout my book often. I feel as though I have a debt to repay to every single person who who looked like me but was, you know, uh, defined as property, a slave, uh, who held on against all odds, against all hope, uh, uh, and not because of their own lives were so bearable, but because they peered into the future and they saw their children's children's children. And I am Grandma Rhoda's children, children, children. I am that person. And I feel as though I have a debt to repay to her to make sure that I live well. And that's that's, that's one of the primary reasons why I refuse to walk around like a victim. Are there people who try to victimize us of course, there's always people i mean and it doesn't and it's, and it's not beholden to white skin. white people don't have the market cornered on racism. white people don't have the market cornered on trying to victimize and take advantage of people um, i mean hatred runs i mean hatred is as immovable as a parcel of land, and it will occupy any willing uh subject uh, but I refuse. Today, understanding my history, understanding what those who have come before me had to sacrifice and give so that I can live the life that I'm living today, I refuse to make a mockery of their sacrifices and allow someone to victimize me. It doesn't mean that people have not taken advantage of me, but I refuse to be a victim of it. I, re- I-, I-, I demand of myself to rise above and to and to become a victor in every situation.
2: Now, I mean, why is it? What is it with politics that people like you are afraid to get into it and make America a better place?
0: Because we have common sense. I mean, I mean who signs up? I, can I mean, answer. who signs up? Who signs up to be abused? You, you, you sign up to. I've never run. For for um, a public office ever in my life, I never had any intentions of running for public office. But oh my goodness, my my thoughts, my reasons, are the most purest of reasons. I, I've limited myself to running for two terms only. Um, I do not believe that our, our republic was made for people to get into office and then die in office. So I've limited myself to two terms. I make it very public. I am not here for the express purpose of, of garnering power for myself. But I want to be in a position so that I can give access to the people, uh, so that I can give the control back to the people. If ever we needed an example of how – much how involved the government is in every single aspect of our lives, now we have a pretty clear picture of that. You can't even go outside without them telling you if you can or can't, if it's sanctioned or not, if you're an essential employee or not, right? So they have such a tremendous uh, impact and say over every single aspect of our lives, don't we want people in Congress? Uh, Don't we want people in these particular offices, in these particular positions, who understand the concept of the Constitution, who, who have an appreciation or a love for this nation, who wants to see every single individual thrive? And so people don't get into politics because we're smarter than that. Um I had no intentions of getting in. I mean it's just it's just dirty business. It's 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 the reason why we say politics is dirty. It is. And I'm not even dealing with Democrats yet. I'm just dealing with our side of the aisle right now. It's just a bunch of foolishness. Um and yet I love my country. And yet when I add up the priorities of my life, I know that my story only takes place right here in America. And I want to preserve This nation for the next little uh, Black boy and girl Who feel that they need to crawl From up under a rock and want to be able To scratch out a life for themselves Because the way in which We're going we're not going to have that I mean, America is in trouble, um, in case somebody didn't know that already, in case you're thinking (laughs) this is just one of those moments that's going to quickly pass on by and we can get back to, you know, our our regular way of living. No, we, I mean, America is in trouble. You just have a whole city being taken over in (laughs) Seattle. I mean, and you have government leaders who's supposed to be uh, watchful and dutiful over uh, us and our nation, over the responsibilities that they have, just flee, just give it just give it away. And this is coming to a uh, to a, to a city near you, because just like we saw the riots, it started in Minneapolis, but when they saw that they could take over and run over. A police department, and no one would stop them, guess what? It emboldened them. And then we began to see it in over 30 cities across this nation. Now, guess what? The powers that be are watching what just took place in Seattle, Washington. And guess what? They're recognizing something. We got weak, flimsy, backbone leaders at him, and they're not going to do a thing. They're going to wait for the president to do something, and then they're going to accuse him of being too
3: harsh.
2: Man, you don't have opinion, do you, Kathy?
0: <laughs> I know, right? I mean, but we need people with opinions. And not only people with opinions, but people who, quite frankly, I mean, I love this nation, and I, I want to preserve it. I honestly, I remember making a decision in my mind when I was graduating from boot camp that if I was called to lay my life down, I would. Now, I think my life is just as valuable as anybody else's life. I'm not trying to be a martyr. I'm not trying to have my life disrupted, right? Just like no one else is trying to do that. But when you when I came to that decision, it caused me at the age of 18 to begin to understand why exactly what exactly am I laying my life that potentially may be called to lay my life down for? And it began a journey that started at the age of 18 that has continued on today of understanding the good the bad, the downright ugly, and the opportunity of this country, and learning how to be a balanced individual. I can recognize the evils that took place. Slavery, Jim Crow law, flat-out evil. I'm not making any excuses for it. It was wrong. It was doubly wrong. It was evil from the core. There's there's no – it's just ugly. So I'm not trying to equivocate that. And yet I can also see how our nation – has uh, you know, for over a hundred years now, uh, like maybe, let me see, maybe almost close to two hundred years now, about a, 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 a maybe about a hundred and fifty years now, <laughs> have worked diligently to right those wrongs. Do I believe those wrongs have been righted? No. But do I believe that we are on the pathway? Yes. We are, because unless you're dead, you're constantly improving. Now, we have an issue in this nation, and it is the lack of inclusion for for black people, for minorities. And we can have that conversation, and we can all come to the table like reasonable human beings and talk. Black people do not need to be given space to to just rout, to riot and tear up stuff. We are intelligent people as well. We can sit down, string sentences together, and communicate our feelings. We don't have to be given space to act like animals. We don't have to do that because we're smart. We're better than that. We're not as low as those particular mayors will have us to think that we are, that this is the only way we can get our frustrations out. I reject that foolishness. But we got to start doing better. we got to call a spade a spade. There are some opportunities in this nation. I believe that opportunity uh, surrounds itself around financial inclusion, around educational inclusion, and getting white liberals out of these predominantly black communities trying to tell us what our issues are and allow us to have a seat at the table in determining the design of our communities.
2: Well, Kathy, it has been a lot of fun to have you on here, and I want to welcome you back, give your campaign a little bit more of a push. People can find Barnett, your your last name, B-A-R-N-E-T-T-E, Kathy Barnett for congress.com. Good luck on your campaign. Uh, You're running for the 4th District of Pennsylvania. God bless. Blessings. All right, Kathy Barnett, check out her website and help support her campaign. Go on there and make a donation. And I want to welcome our next and final victim up in the batter's box. I want to welcome aboard Jonathan Butler. Good afternoon, Jonathan, with Heritage Foundation. Hello, good afternoon. Uh, it is a pleasure having you here. Um, I'm glad every week Heritage is sending me a guest, and I'm encouraging people to go on to Heritage dot com to learn about more of what you guys are doing out there. Oh uh, man, I don't even know where to start with you at this point. <laughs> My head is spinning from this show. We've had you're the fifth and final guest, and boy, we've covered everything under the sun today. Oh uh, man, you're the S- senior policy analysis for the Center for Education. And with this lockdown, everyone is starting to relook at how our public education
9: is handled.
2: And I think we're going to come out the other end of this with some very surprising results. What say you?
9: Yes, I think you're exactly right. I mean, if the surveys are any indication, more families are thinking about keeping their children home in the fall. Now, of course, some of this may be due to parents afraid of what the uh, situation will be with the pandemic and, and what the spread may look like. But also, I think families are... Uh, at least, again, according to what we're seeing from reports at um, uh, big cities especially, uh, they're disappointed at what uh, came from local districts as they tried to pivot to online instruction.
2: You know, you write a book called The Not-So-Great Society, and when people think of Great Society, we think LBJ. Um, what happened to our education system? You know, we – it used to be diversified, spread out to the local area, and now it's not. Now we've got big problems.
9: Well, and if there's one thing that we could put our finger on, it's the increasing presence of uh, the federal government in our K-12 schools. And it began, you know, really with an increase in money, but that, of course, was quickly followed by regulations and, frankly, more programs that Washington thought that they could manage from. Uh, inside the beltway. And uh, you know, remember, uh, many of these things from the Great Society were meant to help those who were most disadvantaged. I mean, they were meant to help students in poverty. They were meant to help students who uh, you know, were struggling both um, uh, in, in terms of how you know, what their home life was like, as well as what was going on at school. And all we can say today is that it, um, this additional Um, quote-unquote, help from Washington has not succeeded. And there are a number of indicators we can point to. Well, anything coming
2: out of D.C., there's always going to be a string attached. Oh, here you go, a nice little stimulus check. But there's in the end, there's going to be a penalty to to pay for that.
9: Well, absolutely. And and when it comes to K-12 learning, um, uh, when they began to – Uh, when they started the U.S. Department of Education, 1979, 1980, uh, a big part of that agency's um, uh, new responsibilities were a continuation of what had been several decades of kind of ramping up and escalating the uh, programs coming from Washington dealing with K-12 schools, but again, all focused on narrowing the achievement gap between uh, low-income students and their peers. And a big uh, finding from our book, uh, from one of our guest writers um, in, in that in our book is uh, that the gap between children at the upper end of the uh, economic spectrum and those at the lower end that achievement gap has persisted. It's been largely unchanged, so this idea that Washington could come in with additional money and all sorts of you know changes to programs, everything from you know, national standards to even going back before that to simply uh, creating all sorts of extraneous programs, after-school programs, things like that. Uh, it has not. It has not narrowed the gap. So we still have that with us today. Well, you know,
2: public schooling is institut- institutionalization. Uh, if you do have the finances and you can send your kids to a private school, uh, to a religious. Uh, school you know you end up finding that your child's better educated because they don't have to follow the federal standards they can do traditional learning and the problem is is that our schools no longer have traditional learning but with this virus i think the parents are finally starting to figure that out do you think it would be enough of a momentum to finally have
9: school choice for everyone Well, and we certainly hope so. I think the the problem that has always been there is that there are those who have choices and those who simply do not. There are those who are able to up and move to a better neighborhood. That's always been there. Uh, There are those who have been able to afford private school tuition and those who haven't. Uh, And there are those who struggle mightily to do so anyway. Uh, But what we have got to provide, and I think what is ultimately, it is a policy issue for um, uh, state governments specifically, are to create more options. And whether that's allowing for the creation of charter schools, uh, which is something that's new even in states today. West Virginia just recently enacted a law allowing the creation of charter schools. Kentucky is still waiting to have charters created there uh, after a, you know, a back-and-forth struggle to even get a law, um, not to mention private school scholarships. Uh, which is something that is it's available in about half of all U.S. states today have some sort of private school scholarship program. But again, these programs are largely limited in eligibility to children from low-income families, which is great. We want to help them, absolutely. But if, the more that you narrow that eligibility, the more you create a gap. You widen the gap between those that have and have not, those that have opportunities and those that don't. That's what we've got to fix. We have to create an education landscape where there is not a gap between those that have great opportunities and those that do not.
2: Um, are you familiar with Sherry Few?
9: She has
2: a uh, PI. All right, She happens to be a friend of mine. She started off here in South Carolina just informing parents about Common Core, and she's expanded it now nationwide. She's got USPIE, Parents Involved in Education. Um, she, this is the first time I came across the problems that are on a massive scale with Common Core. You know, Unfortunately, I was not blessed with children, so I wasn't involved in the education system, but she opened up my eyes. Big time. Um, One of the things that I I learned is that even if you don't have kids, education of the children in your neighborhood is imperative to the health and economic health of the neighborhood. And I don't think people understand that.
9: Oh, I think, and that's always been true. I think you're exactly right. And I, and I actually, you know, if you look back hundred, 120 some uh, years, you see that the creation of high schools and the creation of ultimately school districts that, you know, began to be an umbrella over a high school, a middle school and elementary school, you know, that was driven by local families that wanted to have a place to send their children to learn the skills they needed to enter the ever-changing workforce. I mean, people saw that even 50, 7,500 years ago. They began to see the need to have this. Um, now, the trouble is that uh, as um, uh, more of that learning became standardized, I think the quality varied greatly. And as we um, uh, see today, especially in areas uh, like Los Angeles, Chicago, um, even, you know, it, it, pick your large city, right? Um, New York City, you have this uh, confluence of factors where um, you know you uh, you're asking schools to over not you know not just help students um, reach to where their peers are, but you're asking them to overcome a lot of other. Societal factors and, and, and family-related factors, that uh, that can be a real challenge. I mean, this is something that people have been saying for a half a century, you know, that uh, we're asking schools to overcome everything from single-parent families to uh, and, and the struggles associated with that to uh, violent neighborhoods. And I think that's, that's asking too much. I mean, that's why we need to have a strong civil society answer through community organizations, through um, church organizations, through um, you know all of these different things that that unite right the fabric of a civil society. These need to exist alongside schools because we can't simply ask uh, schools to take all of these responsibilities. Because what you know what we what we will wind up with is then asking for more money and uh, saying that you know then we need you know more money to be able to provide all these services. The services are already uneven from place to place. So we you know we spin ourselves in a circle.
2: Well, it's funny because I've always said all politics starts local, and it's so very true, and if you're not involved in knowing what is going on in your local school district, then shame on you, because all of a sudden that tax bill is going to come in, and you're going, I'm paying how much? What is this for? And the millage just went up again? Really? Um, I got involved in finding out what was going on with our school board, and Because we had school superintendents that were really bad, we eventually got rid of them and finally have someone in there that is highly competent and is improving. But if we don't improve the quality of the students, how do you maintain the quality of the neighborhood? How do you maintain the individuals remaining here in the neighborhood to build businesses and build their families if we don't have good quality education? The people don't understand how much it affects their
9: everyday life. Oh, you're, and you're absolutely right. And we're going to see this issue of public school finances up close and personal in the coming year because, as we are already, I think, officially in a recession, and um, uh, district schools will, will feel the effects because they lean on uh, state revenues uh, much more in, in recent years, especially. Um, and so, you know, we're going to start to see where they look to make cuts or how they look to make changes in order to, to weather the storm. And those are the places where we really should ask, well, wait a minute, did it need to be there in the first place? Or is this something that we really should be asking um, these community organizations, these faith-based organizations, like we were talking about uh, to uh, to be responsible for in the first place?
2: Oh, it's funny because I just got my tax bill in here in South Carolina. Uh, you pay uh, property tax, not just on real property, but on your motor vehicles, your boats, your boat motors. Um, and the appraised value of the vehicle was about six thousand dollars. The assessed value was only three hundred and seventy dollars now now, this is the assessed value three hundred and seventy dollars. My tax bill for this vehicle, uh, which is a two thousand and seven, is one hundred and forty six dollars this This is where it what we do with our education is important to know because here out of there. Um, The county takes its taxes, then we have a school operation and school bond. Over 50% of the tax are just those two things, the school operation and school bond. What happens in your school district and how your kids are educated and where your tax dollars goes is very, very important.
9: And That's right. And looking at your tax bill like that every year is a, is a reminder for it. Uh, I think one of the things that it's important to remember is uh, oftentimes administrators will make significantly more than educators. Um, and that's something that people uh, should pay more attention to because we've reached a point where approximately half of the school staff in the United States are non-instructional staff. Uh, so we have a, um, a K-12 system that is increasingly becoming uh, top-heavy. And and I think diverting attention away from the the main purpose of schools, which is classroom instruction, uh, and when you have a, a, a you know a district superintendent who's making you know six figures, and a a, a teacher who's making far less than that, uh, I think it's the teachers as well as the families who need to be asking, wait a minute, what's you know what's going on here?
2: You know, it's funny because here in South Carolina. Now we have charter schools that are public schools, and what I find, they've got a higher quality of, of teachers, a higher quality of students being put out there, but you also have far more parent involvement, and you got people lining up just to get themselves registered for these charter schools. The beauty of it is is that the charter schools require a family member, whether it's a parent, a grandparent, a aunt, aunt, uncle, to spend 20 hours. Each month at the school, whether you're serving food in the cafeteria or you're assisting in the classroom or even doing clerical work so that the parent or the family member gets to see how the school is run, gets to see who their kid is hanging out with and has more involvement in the education of that child. I think this is what maybe we should be turning all of our public schools into.
9: Oh, I agree. And I had the chance to see that up close and personal. I was the director of accountability for South Carolina's public charter school district about a decade ago. And uh, it was, it was amazing to see um, individuals and groups create charter schools. It was great to see the growth of those, uh, of those schools. And now, um, now we have two authorizers in the state. And I think that's very exciting. I think that's, uh, you know, it's a great way to get, charter schools of different kinds opening in different parts of the state to help students with different needs. It's very, very exciting.
2: Well, I've always said the dollars should follow the child. The child should not chase the dollars, but this is what the federal government has us doing. We are chasing, our kids are chasing the
9: dollars instead of the dollars following the child. Uh, Absolutely. Well, and, and like you said, with uh, charter schools in particular, it's, it's helping to, um, I think, uh, create a scenario where parents are more involved in what uh, is going on in their uh, child's education every day. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's going back to the pandemic. This is a, an opportunity that parents had through this um, situation of, you know, students being quarantined at home to see the content that their students were learning. And, uh, and that was very important. Now parents are more aware. And uh, I think that also is leading into why some parents are thinking about home scoring for the fall.
2: Well, I think a lot of parents also had a huge eye-opener on the subjects and the textbooks that these kids are using. Uh, Very few people realize the vast majority of textbooks come out of Texas, out of basically one publishing house. Consequently, they control the content of the education.
9: Oh, absolutely. Texas and California, right? Uh, A lot of the uh, textbook publishing companies uh, and and the material produced comes from there. I think, you know, these days uh, what we should be watching is what's coming out of the New York Times. Uh, The New York Times 1619 project was created not just to be a big piece in the uh, New York Times, uh, you know, magazine, but it was also designed to be a curriculum for schools. And what people need to understand is that they have issued corrections to this 1619 Project material uh, since it was released, and you know the unfortunate part is that the material is already in schools, so the mistakes in there. Uh, it's easy for a newspaper to go back and, and you know print a correction, but much harder to go back and change a textbook.
2: And That it is, and the 1619 Project was one huge big propaganda to give us white a guilt. It essentially, is what it is. Uh, it's a pushing forward an agenda that's based on a false premise
9: well it was fascinating to see experts from you know both sides of the aisle uh, come out and and criticize the content Um, there were uh, experts who you know you would not call you know your traditional conservative um, um, academics who were who were saying that there were problems with uh, both the approach and and the way that they described some of the factual um, uh, factual material and so uh, again you know, now that parents have the chance to be home with their students and see what they're being taught, this is, this is the opportunity for parents to weigh in uh, now that students get hopefully prepared to go back to school and, and you know, go to the school board, go to the school um, and be able to say, hey, look, you know, this is, uh, this is not the kind of thing that, um, you know, I feel is right for my child.
2: And they, haven't, they have to be able to not be afraid to confront the school board member that represents their district or even the school superintendent. Um, I went to a school board meeting, and they were trying to push through a resolution that um, a certain individual didn't have a full vote. They had like a seven-eighths or something like that. And I went in there with a sign saying, this is not Common Core math. A person is a full being. <laughs> it went over like a lead balloon to the point where I handed the school superintendent my business card. He looked at it, sneered at me over his shoulder. And I just stood there cracking up. I says, I'm so hurt. Oh, my God, I am devastated. I just held my sign up higher. But we have to have people in the neighborhood to get involved in the local level. But also we have to take it up to see the state level to see what they're doing because that affects all the schools throughout the whole uh, state, which ones are getting preferential treatments, because sometimes somewhere along the way someone decides one school is going to get more per student than another school for whatever reason. Or you even up to the federal level to see what policies are being passed down and mandated on the schools. So we have to be involved on all levels because we're being assaulted on all levels.
9: Well, and that's right, and that's why we need a variety of options, you know, because I think there are some school boards that will be um, more receptive to parent involvement and, and maybe smaller, right, for smaller areas uh, where parents can have uh, more of a difference. And then there may be others that, um, you know, when the district is large and it's a you know, big political bureaucratic process, it's much hard to um, uh, to make your way into that bureaucracy and see real change happen. So for those parents who feel like they need something else for their child – That's why we need education savings accounts. That's why we need private school scholarships. That's why we need charter schools. Um, That's why in Los Angeles and Chicago, when the unions recently pushed for um, caps and moratorium on creating new charter schools, that, I mean, that should be devastating to those families. Policymakers should not stand for that. Um, These are critical, you know, outlets and options for families who feel like, Their students are are trapped in a place where they're, you know, not satisfied with what they're learning. Oh, that's
2: the huge important part because I remember growing up, uh, my parents had moved from one area in New York to another specifically because the school was down the street. It was a high-quality school. They knew the quality of the education coming in there. And lo and behold, a year after we moved in there, we had busing. So, yes, Camila Harris, I got bused, too, just like you, and I got sent to a neighborhood that was five miles away from our home, not within a one-mile distance. But this is what the federal government will do. They'll place policies in place and to hell with whomever it hurts.
9: And, you know, for those students who are happy, for those students who are in a good place, that's great, right? These options don't threaten those students. That's not what these, these are designed to do. These are designed to give hope to those students who are not. Uh, every child is different. Every family is going to have a different need. Uh, and so, you know, look, for uh, families that are satisfied with their neighborhood school, that's that's great. Uh, it's, it's for those that may not be, right? We, we need to have that opportunity there uh, because that's really, that needs to be, what the mark of the education landscape in the United States should be. It should be marked by hope and opportunity. Curtis, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
4: My my comment is specific to the um, 1619 project. I believe those on the left feel that in order to maintain their hold on the black community, they have to keep this um, slave narrative going. In the black community, and they do this through um Hollywood. I mean, they put out movies that always show you know blacks being you know tortured and and raped and lynched and things like that um they hear it in in you know the shows that they watch on t v and and so on, so I believe that that as long as they can keep the slavery. Um, narrative going blacks will you know most blacks will probably always remain democrats unless we somehow get them to separate themselves from that narrative
2: did we lose jonathan no i'm still here we i may have... said
9: it very well i mean i not much i can <laughs> add to that i i, I again i think I think that's why as we look at the way that the public education system has evolved over time uh, into um, a, uh, a situation where you have students assigned to schools of uneven quality around the country and of almost, um, you know, there, there's almost a, um, uh, a reliable uh, situation that you're going to need to have multiple options, especially in big cities like LA, New York city, Chicago, you know, the charter schools that have brought so much hope um, to New York city, like the success academies, like the kits and things like that. Um, you know, this is, this is the way I think uh, that we have to t- go to our policymakers and say, we need this for every child. We need this for every child. Well, we need them to have something beyond what they are assigned to this, this concept of district school assignment is, um, Uh, is outdated and it it needs to uh, it it needs to be changed Uh, that we have got to change it from you are assigned based on where you live uh, based on the neighborhood that you grew up in uh, to the place where you feel like uh, is the best fit for you and look again for for those that have a local school that they're happy with you know carry on no one's gonna we don't want to take that away from anyone but we do need to help those who uh, who feel trapped and and sadly there are those, right? We're not just making this up. I mean, whether it's from test scores to uh, high school graduation rates to college completion to um, uh, neighborhood violence, we know, right, that there are students that need something more. So it's, uh, it's why this concept of opportunity has to be something that I think permeates through the narrative about um, – You know, tearing down public schools or the way unions say that we're trying to destroy something. We're not trying to destroy something, we're trying to build something.
5: Well,
2: you've got an excellent article on Redefine Ed, um, the new definition of public education. It's titled Homeschooling's Moment, and there's a lot of interesting information in there, you know, from the Harvard Law School uh, quote unquote (laughs) study or conference or whatever they had saying with the propaganda of problems of educational deprivation and child maltreatment too often occur under the guise of homeschooling, trying to make it sound like it's bad. Yet more African-American families are choosing to homeschool, uh, previously underrepresented demographic. And Dr. Lindsey Burke said that if 60% of the uh, people dropped to just 6% on homeschooling, Still, the number of children homeschooled in the U.S. would double. Very, very excellent article. We're down to our last four minutes, Jonathan. The time flew today. Unbelievable. I want to thank you for joining us and welcome you back anytime. There's so much more to delve into the education because our future is with our kids.
9: Well, thank you. Glad to be with you.
2: It is our pleasure. Jonathan Butler, uh, check him out with the Heritage.org, Heritage Foundation. All right, Curtis, we're Thank down you. to our last few minutes. Excuse <laughs> me, we <laughed> down <laughs> to our last few minutes. And um, I do believe Bill Muckler is going to be joining us next week. Um, he's got the 2020 revolution. Um, I'm hoping Sandra Lee will say yes to next Friday also. apologize anyone that stopped in um, last week looking for Sandra Lee, but uh, she got involved with her kids and grandkids and lost track of time and Left me a beautiful, beautiful little message on the phone, but we just haven't been able to connect. Want to thank everyone that has been listening here on Blog Talk Radio, listening and watching over on Facebook and all the other platforms that we broadcast on. Check us out also on iHeartRadio as well as iTunes. Um, but that's all we got for tonight. And I think that's all we got to say for now.
4: Yep. Until next week. <laughs> all same right. Time, so until time. Same station. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and matter of fact, I'm gonna be closing off with this fantastic song we have here with Loretta Lynn and Bobby Bear, God Bless America again.
3: God bless America again.
1: Bless America again, just like you did way back there when it all began. You blessed her then, and we just kind of took it for granted, and we did. So just hold her hand now, that's all. In case she stumbles, please don't let her fall.
3: You see all the troubles that she's in
1: I don't understand everything that I read and hear about what's wrong with America. When you don't have a lot of book learning, there's many things that you don't understand. But I know this woman.
3: She's like a mother to me, and I love her with all my heart.
1: And let me tell you this. Everything I am or ever hoped to be, I owe to her.